Both sides of the stairwell just outside the locked court area were lined with people. Most didn't get a seat to hear the judge's verdict. The crowd began applauding and cheering when reporters in a matter of minutes rushed out and reported the news, guilty of all three murders. Viola Witt hadn't attended the trial, but she was here this morning. Her cousin was Emmanuel Thomas, one of the murdered men. I was happy. I think justice was served, and I hope it follows down the line. Were you able to get inside? No, I wasn't. When did you hear the verdict? As soon as everybody ran out. What was your immediate reaction? Justice was served. Charlie's Moore did get a seat today. In yeah, fact, he said he's been here every day. I am happy with Judge Marshall's decision. And I believe the black community and white community feel the same way I feel. Councilman James Pitts and David Collins were pleased with the verdict, but both believe more effort should be directed to the unsolved taxicab murders committed in the same time period. Uh, the trial, while it was good, it did not examine whether or not Christopher acted alone, whether or not he was part of a conspiracy. It did not examine whether or not there was a connection between the cab driver murders and the 22 caliber killings. I felt very relieved, very relieved. I felt good about it. I think that it was fitting and proper. I think the judge uh, uh, rendered a good decision, and I, feel, I think that the community will react favorably to it. Reverend Bennett Smith believes the non-jury trial was responsible for the guilty verdict. Yes, Mr. Christopher, by asking for a non-jury trial, um, spelled the beginning of the end for him. For we were convinced that if an experienced legal mind heard and weighed that circumstantial evidence against him, that that legal mind would convict him. Former District Attorney Edward Cosgrove again applauded the efforts of the Major Homicide Task Force and expressed sadness for the victim's family and the convicted man's mother. Because I met that lady. I chatted with her for an hour before the, the search was executed. And uh, she's a good Christian woman. Uh, her family has suffered an awful, an awful anguish, an awful, an awful grief as a result of the circumstance, as has her son. And uh, she, uh, her family, and the families of the victims need our support and prayers. So after a year, the first trial is over for Joseph Christopher, but this is just the beginning. Christopher must still stand trial for two other murders, one in Niagara Falls and one in New York City, and four other attempted murders. At State Supreme Court, Marie Rice News 4. Eleven days of testimony and uh, 50 witnesses over almost 200 exhibits, and uh, the judge takes 24 hours to reach a verdict. What's your reaction, both of you? Well, Rick, we're obviously very disappointed uh, with the verdict. We felt that uh, we had put up a defense which would warrant the court to conclude that there was not proof in this case beyond a reasonable doubt and therefore to acquit our client. However, I'm sure Justice Marshall reviewed all of the evidence very carefully, uh, considered the exhibits that were placed before him, and reached a verdict that uh, he could justify in his own mind, and that's what we have to live with. Mark, what kind of a feeling do you have after uh, all the, the intensity and emotion that's obviously gone into this case when you stand there and you hear the verdict and it's adverse? Well, neither Kevin nor I are accustomed uh, to unfavorable verdicts, of course. Uh, it happens, and you put a lot of work into a case, and you always believe in your own case. And we, uh, we believe in everything that we've done. And it's a disappointment, as Kevin said. But right now, uh, I think the main feeling both of us have is we have a lot of clients who are important to us and a lot of judges and cases that are waiting for our attention. And we're sort of looking to getting on to some of the other things that we have to do right now.
Now, I realize that neither one of you could be, could be involved in an appeal of this case, but uh, if the Legal Aid Bureau is looking, uh, will be looking over the record in that, uh, what are possible grounds for appeal? Are there any grounds for appeal in this area, in this matter? Well, Rick, I'm, I'm sure there are grounds for appeal. However, that's not a question that uh, I've ever considered before today. We did not believe that an appeal would be necessary. Uh, Mark and I, I'm sure over the course of the next couple of months, we'll sit down with the people from the Legal Aid Bureau and assist them in their review of all the transcripts and the uh, and proceedings that have occurred. And that's a decision that will be made at a later date. Mark, as far as most of the people of the city of Buffalo are going to be concerned tonight, Joseph Christopher is the 22 caliber killer. Uh, do you think the wrong man's been convicted? Well, the most that a defense attorney, I think, can say is that uh, it relates to whether or not the prosecution has proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt. More than that, uh, I'm not going to speculate on any theory regarding all these crimes. As far as I'm concerned, the arguments that I made in closing were the, were the proper arguments. There was reason to doubt this person's guilt. Uh, uh, one, on the other hand, as Kevin has said, cannot fault Judge Marshall. But uh, I'm not going to offer my opinion about the prosecution or the police's theory regarding these crimes. It was one of the most celebrated murder trials in the history of Buffalo. It took 11 days of testimony, featured more than 50 witnesses, 145 pieces of evidence. But in the end, it took State Supreme Court Justice Frederick Marshall less than 24 hours to reach a verdict. As he has throughout this trial, Joseph Christopher sat impassively today with just the hint of a smile on his face as Judge Marshall entered the courtroom. As he took his place at the bench, Judge Marshall said simply, I have a verdict. Reading from a prepared decision, Judge Marshall commended all the attorneys for their fine work, then said, The court has examined every exhibit, reviewed the testimony of every witness, has weighed the evidence, and reached a verdict. He paused. Christopher's mother and sister looked on, and his mother quickly blessed herself. Marshall then looked at the defendant and said, The people have sustained their burden of proof, and proven beyond a reasonable doubt by legally sufficient trial evidence, each and every element of the offense charged. I find the defendant guilty of counts one, two, and three of the indictment, the murders of Glenn Dunn, Harold Green, and Emmanuel Thomas. Judge Marshall set sentencing for May 24th. Christopher could receive a sentence of up to 75 years in prison. Outside the courtroom, the reactions of the attorneys were subdued. Well, I'm relieved, uh, I'm relieved that the case is finally over. We were confident that uh, if the judge or a jury heard all the evidence, there'd be one inescapable uh, uh, conclusion. Well, we're obviously uh, uh, disappointed uh, with the result. Uh, I guess that, that word kind of best expresses my sentiments at this time. Defense attorneys Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney say it will take a few weeks to decide whether or not to appeal the verdict. The court sources tell me much of what was decided in closed pretrial hearings could form the basis for an appeal, an appeal that those sources say could go all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Rick Pfeiffer, News 4, State Supreme Court. At midday, News 4 attorney H. Kenneth Schrader presented the county clerk's office with an order signed by State Supreme Court Justice William Flynn directing the release of most of the material involved in the closed-door pretrial proceedings for Joseph Christopher. Justice Flynn presided over those hearings, 
The material released today dealt with the murders of Glenn Dunn, Harold Green, and Emmanuel Thomas. Among the more significant documents contained in the file was an affidavit by defense attorneys Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney requesting the suppression of evidence to be used at Christopher's trial. In that affidavit, Dillon and Mahoney contend affidavits used to issue search warrants for Christopher's home and hunting lodge failed to establish probable cause. A lineup conducted by the district attorney's office was unnecessarily suggestive and conducive to mistaken identification. Additionally, Christopher's attorneys say he was questioned without the approval of his military attorney or a proper waiver of his right to counsel. In papers filed by defense attorney Mark Mahoney, the focus of Christopher's pending appeal of his conviction is clear. Mahoney maintains the conviction should be thrown out because Justice Flynn did not suppress pretrial evidence, improperly accepted Christopher's waiver of a jury trial, allowed testimony by nurses and a Catholic priest, which were constitutionally protected conversations, denied the defense access to certain prosecution material, and improperly denied defense motions for a mistrial. The material released to us exclusively today shows exactly what grounds attorneys for Joseph Christopher will use in appealing his conviction, an appeal that court sources tell us could go all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Rick Pfeiffer, News 4, State Supreme Court. Judge William Flynn has until next Monday to explain why his ban on press coverage of the Christopher pre-trial hearing should not be lifted. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall told Flynn today to respond to a petition filed this week by local Buffalo media. Yesterday, three parties, including attorneys for News 4, asked that the press and public be allowed to attend the pre-trial hearing of Army Private Joseph Christopher. Christopher is the leading suspect in Buffalo's 22 caliber killings. The arguments the petitioners used in their request to lift the gag order are themselves under a kind of press blackout because they deal with the proceedings of the Christopher case. In order to protect themselves from possible contempt charges, the attorneys for the Buffalo media filed their specific arguments sealed for only the eyes of the high court. Those are the arguments to which Judge Flynn must now respond. Marshall's call for Flynn's response doesn't necessarily favor the judge or the media. What it does mean is that Marshall wants to have some points clarified before he decides next week whether the press gets in or stays out of the 22 caliber proceedings. Bob Petrick, News 4, Washington. The blacked-out pretrial hearings got underway promptly this morning. This is an artist's conception of the courtroom proceedings. With reporters and the public barred, only court personnel, attorneys, and witnesses are present. Army nurse Lieutenant Dorothy Anderson was first on the stand. She and four others from Fort Benning, Georgia, were flown to Buffalo for their testimony. Did you testify to what Christopher allegedly said in your presence? You can't talk to us? Anderson, another Army nurse, Captain Bernard Burgess, and Christopher Corwin, this witness, all reportedly heard Christopher brag about killing blacks in Buffalo and New York. Private Corwin reportedly guarded Christopher during a suicide watch in Georgia when he reportedly heard him boast about being a mass murderer. None of the witnesses would talk to reporters because of Supreme Court Justice William Flynn's gag order. Judge Flynn entered an order in connection with these proceedings uh, indicating that the attorneys and the witnesses who testify and who participate in the proceeding are not allowed to divulge the contents of their testimony or what occurs in the course of the proceeding. So while the pretrial hearings continue here in Buffalo, the news media continues its battle in Washington to overturn that news blackout. At County Hall, Marie Rice, News 4, Buffalo. 
Joseph Christopher was convicted in 1982 for three of the 22 caliber killings, the murders of Glenn Dunn, Emmanuel Thomas, and Harold Green. His conviction was overturned in 1985 by New York's highest court, the State Court of Appeals. Retried in 1986, Christopher was convicted of three counts of manslaughter in the first degree because of extreme emotional disturbance. It was at the 1986 retrial in Buffalo that prosecutors played a videotaped psychiatric interview of Joseph Christopher confessing to crimes for which he was not on trial, most notably the two grisly taxicab murders of Parlor Edwards and Ernest Jones in October 1980. Prosecutor Al Rainey referenced the cabbie killings multiple times during his argument to the jury, even though there was no evidence pointing to Christopher as the perpetrator. Christopher's trial sparked yet more racial strife in the city of Buffalo. When first unmasked, he seemed an unlikely candidate to have held New York in a grip of terror. His tragic descent into madness may ultimately serve as an indictment of the American mental health system that refused his pleas for help. I want to talk. That's joint. I was born a city they call Buffalo. Zero degrees below. It's too damn cold and funky. Mama raised me on the numbers racket. With eight kids and no father. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, 
August 18, 2022. So I have been told this is the Catherine Massey Book Club at the Context of White Supremacy, our final installment on Catherine Pellinero's Absolute Madness. All done, Joseph G. Christopher, Erie County. All of it, we can move forward to a new book after today. I will be quick. Rick James, that was past the joint from the Street Songs album, which was released the very same month, April 1981, that Joey was indicted for these crimes while he was in Fort Benning, Georgia. Even the breakdown of those lyrics, that entire album, really, street song showing Rick James being fondled by an enforcement officer on the album cover. But that entire album, we've heard so much of it. Ghetto Life, Super Freak, Fire and Desire, Past the Joint. The lyrics he said, uh, he said so much. He said a city that is torn. Again, this is in the middle of the 22 caliber killings. A city that is torn. He said, they call me a faggot. I go get my knife and split your chest. Oh, wait a minute. That was Joey. Rick James said, they call me a faggot. Me and my women laughing. Hmm. That's quite a difference in response. They call Rick James a faggot and he makes song lyrics about it and puts it on a multi-platinum selling record. Someone calls Joey a faggot and I got to grab a butcher knife and carve your chest in half. He said his mother couldn't hack it. Grew up with the numbers racket. Talking about being out on the street with hoodlums and what have you past the joint. He didn't he didn't mention being in the numbers racket. You might get your chest carved open and your heart extracted. He didn't say that. Did you hear that in the song? Maybe we have to listen to it one more time. We should did anybody talk to Rick James about that? Have you heard? Being in the numbers racket, they might butcher you up and take your heart. Did you know that? Being in the numbers game? That's what she said happened to Parlor Edwards. Ernest Shorty Jones. She said that wasn't Joey, remember? Uh, ain't no love for brothers. He talk about Buffalo, New York. Ain't no love for brothers. I said, man, there is no way. Anybody listening to this program live, archive, I don't care if you're listening, if it's 2150. Racism, white supremacy, hopefully has been vanquished, replaced with a system of justice. I want you to think. If it's a system of justice and they don't have killings, great. You reminisce, think back to time or study when they did. Now, if the place where you were born and raised, they were killing people, same racial classification as you. You're black, they're killing black male. And you're black male, they're killing black males. You're black female, they're killing black females exclusively. In the place where you were born. Now, you are no longer there, but your family is. And this goes on for seven months. 
do you think it would be possible for you to not know about this at all? The president is talking about this. They're having marches. Jesse Jackson is in town. <laughs> like, do you think it's possible that Rick James didn't know that this was happening? Ain't no love for brothers. Pass the man. If something is going to drive you to drink and consume narcotics, a racist serial killer stalking your hometown, killing black males with impunity for months, might cause you to need a narcotic or three. Anywho, we will get to the final installment of the audio. I just want to make sure that I start off including because Catherine Pellinero, I think, deliberately excluded the Buffalo Challenger, Buffalo Criterion, Buffalo Black newspapers right there who cover this event. She deliberately excluded these journalists, newspapers, and black journalists in total, I think. I said last week the late, great Chet Fuller was also excluded, I think, deliberately. This is from the Buffalo Criterion, Thursday, January 8, 1987. Killing Blacks, not Buffalo News by Abdullah Lukman, L-U-Q-M-A-N. Joseph Christopher is a white Buffaloan who is serving 33 years to life sentence for his conviction of a killing and knife attack in Manhattan last year and also known as the 22 caliber killer who is credited with seven murders and numerous stabbings that terrorized dark-skinned residents of Buffalo, Niagara Falls, and New York City in the fall of 1980, retrial and conviction did not make the top 10 list of news events in Buffalo's only daily newspaper, which is white-owned. There are some, these are some of the crimes and movements in the fall of 1980 that were on video taped by psychiatrist Russell Barton in which Christopher confessed to. September 8, he tried to have himself committed to the Buffalo Psychiatric Center. September 19, he enlisted into the Army. September 22, he killed Glenn Dunn with a sawed-off 22 caliber rifle. September 23, he slew Harold Green and Emmanuel Thomas with the same 22 rifle, all of Buffalo. September 24, Joseph McCoy of Niagara Falls died after being shot by that 22. Parlor Edwards was found in the trunk of his taxi with his heart cut out on a thoroughway service road on October 8. Ernest Jones was found October 9 on a boat launching ramp also with his heart cut out neither heart ever to be found. December 29, Roger Adams was stabbed to death in Rochester for which he takes credit and he attacked Albert Menifee with a knife at a bus stop December 31, 1980. These were the local stories, not national or international events, that eight Buffalo News editors rated best because of their significance to life in western New York ahead of the random killings and trial and conviction of the 22 caliber killer. The Barge The wreck of Barge 45 from August 7 to December 19th. Jim Kelly 
the signing of Buffalo Bills quarterback, the Subway, and the Mall. Formal, formal opening of the transit line and downtown pedestrian mall. <laughs> Woo! Uh, next, Buffalo's baseball stadium. Minor league stadium. Now that one, I could even pause. Uh, that is Mayor Jimmy Griffin, six-pack. Jimmy six-pack. This was a part of his white supremacy nostalgia and this is uh, directly in the book Dr. Krause we talked about that with the history of race and community neighborhoods in Buffalo uh, that baseball stadium was a part of his white supremacy white supremacy nostalgia continuing uh, Mega Mall Prospects a 1.2 billion dollar idea with no firm commitments Peggy Say sister of hostage Terry Anderson the earthquake grant University of Buffalo's earthquake grant <laughs> Trico plans to shift work to Mexico Bowman and the Sabres worst record in hockey and Kemp King race for the House of Representatives seat the tragedy of this is not the minor news sources, but the lack of public outcry or news blackout of our leaders. Everywhere that I traveled during the holiday season, people were screaming like this. I'm skipping a few responses. Christopher was not crazy. He was a bushwhacker who would sneak up on a person with a gun and blow him away and then take an escape route that he had mapped out before. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Everybody should not buy the news on Thursday and buy the Criterion and the Buffalo Challenger to let those editors know that some of our money pays their salaries. Prosecution psychiatrist Dr. Russell Barton said that even if Joseph Christopher had been mentally ill, the severe symptoms of schizophrenia would have passed by his mid-twenties. Barton said that he found that Christopher had personality problems which began in his early childhood and does not think that he ever had paranoid schizophrenia. The videotapes of Dr. Barton's interviews with Christopher were shown to the jury during the trial. Christopher said that he killed drivers, parlor Ed, cab drivers, Parlor Edwards and Ernest Jones, cut out their hearts and drove wooden stakes through them, according to psychiatrist Brian Joseph. When asked how he knew to cut out the hearts, Joseph said that Christopher told him that he felt his own heart. This information had been doubted by retired homicide chief detective Leo Donovan in a published report. Donovan said that it would have been physically impossible for Christopher acting alone to remove the hearts the way that these were removed. I will stop there again. This is in the Buffalo Criteria entitled Killing Blacks, Not Buffalo News. This is in 1997, uh, which to me would suggest that for a long time, White people have been deliberately minimizing 
ignoring the significance of these racist killings and even to now have a book that we're going to wrap up that says hey not racism at all this is just about mental illness the Catherine Massey Book Club context of white supremacy final installment absolute madness Al Rainey and Tom Uwanu agreed that the videotape had been a bad idea. Christopher did not appear to be of sound mind. There was discussion of offering a plea. Al Rainey attended a closed-door meeting. When he came out, he told Uwanu there was not going to be any plea. There must be a prosecution and a conviction. Tom Uwanu thought that was odd. Christopher had already been convicted in New York City. If the decision had been up to Awanu, he would have given Christopher a mental disease or defect sentence. Al Rainey understood how Awanu felt and did not entirely disagree. I can't honestly say he shared the same sympathy as I did, and that's maybe because he was such a professional, Awanu would recall. He had a job to do, and he was very focused to get that done. District Attorney Richard Arcara had chosen Brainy for the case. He knew Al could get him a conviction. There was a major concern about getting a conviction, which I didn't fully understand at the time. Christopher was already serving a long prison sentence. In my opinion, it wasn't the right thing to put this young guy through this trial. I remember Al saying there was a lot of cognizant awareness in what he'd done, planning. So Al was sort of straightforward. He knew what he was doing. It doesn't fit the definition of mental disease or defect. And that was the approach he took in preparation for trial. Even with their commitment to winning a conviction, Uwanu had concerns about their chances of getting it done. Al was very seasoned and knew how to get to a jury. And I would worry about everything because I was young, and he would say, Don't worry, we have a bunch of dead bodies. They're going to want to hang this guy. They don't want him on the street. He killed so many people. That's a huge leg up for us. Christopher, though, there was a gulf in the way he'd been portrayed to the community as a monster. He'd become a racist overnight, and that was, I guess, just where his fears or delusions or whatever had led him. I mean, I don't think there was any rational connection between race and what he did. It was so not fact-based. The issue on this trial is not really what happened, defense attorney Sean Hill said to the jury in his opening statement. The issue is going to be, why did it happen? It had taken some time to seat a jury. During the selection process, one prospective juror had asked out loud in court why they were having a trial, since everybody knew that Christopher was guilty. Since the defense was not contesting the mechanics of the murders of Glenn Dunn, Harold Green, and Emmanuel Thomas, nor the charge that Joseph Christopher had pulled the trigger, the prosecution limited their witnesses to those most pertinent to establishing the shootings had occurred as alleged, and ballistics testimony that connected evidence found at the defendant's homes to the crimes. 
The star witnesses in this trial would be the psychiatrists, Dr. Brian Joseph testifying for the defense, Dr. Russell Barton on behalf of the prosecution. The courtroom was packed, mainly by members of the local media, who covered the case on a day-to-day -day basis, if not the hour-to-hour -hour updates that had occurred back in 1982. Tamuwanu was most often tasked with speaking to them. Dealing with the media circus surrounding high-profile cases had been a trial by fire for Tamuwanu. The Christopher case proceeded immediately after another notorious murder trial in which Uwanu had been co-counsel, the People v. John Justice. Justice was a 17-year-old honor student at a suburban high school when he murdered his mother, father, and younger brother. After stabbing his family to death, Justice had killed a man named Wayne Hahn in a traffic collision. The car crash had apparently been a suicide attempt by Justice, who jumped out of the car and told police, I killed my whole family! I killed my whole family! Justice had pled insanity, with some success. He'd been found not guilty by reason of mental disease in the deaths of his father and brother, but guilty of the intentional murder of his mother and depraved indifference in the death of Wayne Hahn. Throughout Joseph Christopher's trial, Tom Uwanu would look at the defendant sitting at the defense table and think, This is very sad. He was doubly haunted by the memory of John Justice, who had occupied the same chair only a month before. The thought began eating away at him. These are two very sick people, incredibly sick human beings, and we're trying to hang them from the highest post. At least John Justice didn't have politics working against him. There hadn't been the same level of intense push for conviction at all costs. With Joseph Christopher, no expense had been spared. As Uwano recalled, we spent a ton of money. I'm sure we broke the record for that time. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, we're probably outspending them, the defense, ten to one. Christopher's lawyers, David Jay and Sean Hill, had been assigned by the court. They were very high-end, top-shelf attorneys, but nevertheless they had, I presume, limited resources, whereas ours were not. We had the unlimited taxpayer funds, and we had the ability to work night and day on nothing but this case. We spent a huge amount of time with Russell Barton, preparing him to testify. He was being paid a tremendous amount of money, and Al and I would go to his house, spend the day working with him, go to our hotel, then back to his house the next day. We practiced over and over. The jury would first hear from Dr. Brian Joseph, the sole witness for the defense. As an expert witness, Dr. Joseph was also paid for his testimony. Expert witnesses typically are. In this case, Dr. Joseph could not help feeling some personal investment. He had been involved in the case far longer than any other psychiatrist, perhaps longer than any single person aside from the defendant himself. In the weeks leading up to the trial, he had checked in on Christopher at the holding center on a near-daily basis to monitor his medication and progress. Schizophrenia cannot be cured. A patient can only be made better with treatment. Joe Christopher had been made better, though too late, Dr. Joseph thought ruefully. 
It had always stayed with him that this man had tried to get help before any of these criminal acts had occurred. Doctor, Sean Hill asked, may a person suffering from paranoid schizophrenia function normally in many or most aspects of his or her life? Well, yes, Dr. Joseph answered. There seems to be a popular misconception that if a person is schizophrenic, they must be so strange and so bizarre that everybody and anybody would pick them out. The fact is that that is not necessarily true. There are aspects of the person with schizophrenia who does act that way. But there are people who can certainly go through life and be socially, superficially appropriate. For instance, if you have a delusion and you feel that the world's against you, that doesn't mean that you don't get up in the morning and have breakfast that you can't carry on activities or drive a car or get along in the world. You don't have to be completely and absolutely in an utterly out of touch with reality to have a mental illness, to have a form of schizophrenia. Some people are. That's one of the curious aspects of the illness, because it does tend to come and go with its major symptoms. Somebody with schizophrenia, paranoid type, the major problem they have is a paranoid delusion. They don't make a lot of sense. They act odd. Some people don't move at all and are absolutely still. They can sometimes be called catatonic schizophrenia, and in some people there is a blending of the symptoms. One subclass can look like another. So, depending if one doctor saw a patient in one hospital at one point in time, he might see somebody suffering from a catatonic form, but the patient may go to another hospital the symptoms may change to some degree. The paranoia be more obvious, and that doctor would say that person's suffering from paranoid type. So there is some blending in changeability in this illness. It's called variability in the medical sense that symptoms do change in one way or another. No two illnesses affect the same person in the exact same way. Nobody with pneumonia has the same temperature as everybody else or has the same degree of coughing as everybody else, or responds to medication as everybody else. People respond to illnesses and treatment differently, and this is so with schizophrenia as well. Questioning turned to specifics concerning Joseph Christopher. Reporters made occasional notes during direct and again during cross-examination by Al Rainey as the day wore on. A sudden energy filled the courtroom at least insofar as the press, when the prosecutor asked Dr. Joseph about killings that Christopher had discussed with him, and the witness responded, He told me about two cab drivers. Headlines and TV broadcasts were filled with the big news. Joseph Christopher, the twenty-two caliber killer, had confessed to killing the cab drivers and cutting their hearts out. Tom Awanu would later say of Dr. Russell Barton, He was the perfect prosecution witness, a warm elderly man who wouldn't be rattled on the stand. He never looked like he was attacking Joe. In his fine English accent, Dr. Barton told the jury that, in his opinion, the defendant never had schizophrenia. He had borderline personality disorder. He had committed the murders, Barton said, out of a need to feel powerful. Christopher had felt like a nobody. Killing gave him a sense of strength and accomplishment. 
The videotape was played for the jury. Somewhat ironically, both sides held out hope that it would bolster their case. Christopher had murdered the cab driver so gruesomely, Dr. Barton testified, because he wanted front-page headlines. It's really a very sad story of a wasted life. Christopher was maladjusted, even tragic. He had a personality disorder, but he was not insane. Dr. Barton asserted that Christopher was faking insanity in the hope of getting out of a prison and into a mental hospital, and cautioned jurors that if he were to be committed to a psychiatric institution, he could be released in as little as 90 days. The average stay in a psychiatric hospital was only 33 months, Dr. Barton claimed. The defense objected. Judge McCarthy instructed the jury that they were not to consider sentence in determining their verdict. They must disregard Dr. Barton's comment. But, of course, the jury could not unhear it. David Jay gave the closing argument for the defense. He focused on the psychiatric testimony, detailing his client's long history of mental disease. Jay referred to Christopher's aberrant behavior prior to the time he had even become a suspect in the killings. The self-imposed starvation, the laceration of his penis, the utter breakdown when he'd stabbed Leonard Coles in front of a dozen men in his army barracks. Was he faking a psychiatric defense then? Jay asked the jurors. The doctors agree, I believe, and have told you that the schizophrenic process— when you are in the midst of it, you can look fine one second, and it's like turning on a light. Something happens. You hear a voice and back into it. You go into this crazy madness. The entirety of the evidence, David J. argued, all pointed to a single cause for Christopher's actions. Madness. Absolute madness. In his closing arguments, Al Rainey argued that Christopher's past behavior had demonstrated a knowledge of right and wrong, as well as premeditation. When he was in the army, the stabbing of Leonard Coles, Rainey said, he says it was a terrible mistake, bad mistake, I'm terribly sorry, shows appreciation that if you put a knife in someone's stomach or chest, it's wrong. Taxi drivers, more evidence, said the prosecutor. The planning lures those taxi drivers out there, getting in the car, preparing the stakes in advance, getting the hatchets, concealing them, thoughtful, goal-directed behavior. Why did he do these crimes? Not important if you conclude that he was aware, had the capacity to be aware, and had the capacity to know right from wrong. That's enough if you conclude he's legally sane. It's not important what his motive was. Barton gave you an explanation of why he did it, Rainey continued. He didn't have importance. He didn't have self-esteem. He didn't have dignity. He was frustrated at his failures, which is understandable, but superimposed over this was this personality disorder, this maladjustment. The personality disorder doesn't affect your sense of reality, knowing right from wrong. You can conclude safely he doesn't like blacks, and this was a way for him to do something, gain self-esteem. It sounds terrible, but he could gain pride and self-esteem, and that was his objective. He had to do something. Why not blacks? He didn't like them anyways since high school, 
and he would get the thrill of it. He'd get something accomplished. Is it bad? Is it tragic? Of course it is. But did he know what he was doing? Sure. Reminding jurors of what Dr. Barton had said about the average stay in a psych facility being only 33 months, Al Rainey turned his final remarks to the cab drivers, crimes for which Christopher had never been charged, for which his confessions had never been held to scrutiny, and for which he was not on trial, and told the jury, here is a chance to do something else before he makes his mark in the army. Things have died down, and he kills two cab drivers. Maybe they would have gone unnoticed if they were just stabbed or shot. But the heart removal. Here's a chance for real recognition, and he got it. But at the same time, being careful to escape detection, because he knew it was wrong. The jury had three options. Guilty of murder in the second degree, guilty of manslaughter in the first degree because of extreme emotional disturbance, or not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. On December 10, 1986, after 15 hours of deliberation, they returned a verdict of three counts of manslaughter in the first degree because of extreme emotional disturbance. We're satisfied that the jury returned with a verdict of guilty. Al Rainey told reporters, it was a complete rejection of the insanity defense. Attorney Sean Hill said that he was not surprised. I guess in a sense it's a verdict we can understand. The jury worked very hard to come up with the verdict, and it shows they paid attention to the psychiatric evidence. Apparently Judge McCarthy had not. Your acts defy reason. You terminated the lives of three men solely for the color of their skin, he said at the sentencing on January 20, 1987. You terrorized this community for months, causing great alarm. The judge went on about racism. Sean Hill pointed to the jury's verdict and said, I hope we now know why these things happened. It serves no useful purpose to say these were racially motivated killings. McCarthy sentenced Christopher to the maximum of eight and one-third to twenty-five years in prison, to be served consecutively after he served his term of thirty-three and one-third years on the New York City convictions. Judge McCarthy told a news columnist, Christopher's acts were so grievous that my duty was clear. This community had to be satisfied that the criminal justice system would respond in kind. McCarthy commented that the trial had established what Joseph Christopher did, but I don't know that we found out why he did what he did. District Attorney Richard Arcara, who had pushed for the maximum sentence, called Christopher a racial assassin who terrorized the entire community. Al Rainey commented, We're satisfied and happy that this man is going to be in jail for the rest of his natural life. That means he cannot further interfere with the peace and tranquility of this community. Common Council President George Arthur expressed satisfaction with the sentence, calling it a sign that the criminal justice system was working. The videotapes of Christopher's psychiatric interview by Dr. Barton were released to local television stations. Portions of it were played on the news. Proof for the public that Christopher killed the cab drivers. Despite Christopher's confession to the cabbie murders, 
There were law enforcement officials who said publicly and adamantly that they didn't buy it. Buffalo Homicide Chief Leo Donovan was among the most outspoken. Officers who commented to the media were generally circumspect at the time. We weren't happy about the cover-up, Tom Rowan said years later. I know my bosses, Chictawaga Police Department, weren't happy about it, and I know the Amherst Police weren't happy about it. To wrap all of this up with a bow for the sake of making people feel good or safer was wrong. Lying to the community is never justified, under any circumstances. Not to mention that we still had this other killer or killers out there. Joe's confession to the cabbie killings was very convincing, insofar as his apparent sincerity. Tamuwanu, Brian Joseph, and even Joe's own defense attorneys, David Jay and Sean Hill, were convinced by it. But, of course, none of them had ever examined the case files. It would never be known why Joe confessed to the murders of Parlor Edwards and Shorty Jones and the assault on Colin Cole. It's possible that he did so to try and bolster his insanity defense. It's also possible, perhaps even likely, that he had come to believe it himself. He seemed genuinely convinced that he had committed these crimes, perhaps as he had been convinced that he had a child. As he had been convinced that he was being poisoned, as he had been convinced that someone had told him he had sexually assaulted his mother and had become distraught and hysterical in a Georgia jail cell in 1981, pleading with his mother to tell him if it was really true. The district attorney's office released a final report on the matter of Joseph Christopher. In Erie County, Joseph G. Christopher remains under indictment for the assaults on Albert Menifee and Calvin Crippen and is the prime suspect in the murders of Parlor Edwards, Ernest Jones, Roger Adams, and Wendell Barnes, as well as the attempted strangulation of Colin Cole. During psychiatric interviews conducted prior to his 1986 trial, Joseph G. Christopher spoke with psychiatrists about the crimes pending against him and those in which he was a suspect. Information from those psychiatric interviews is consistent with the hypothesis that he committed the homicides of Parlor Edwards, Ernest Jones, Roger Adams, and the attempted assault upon Colin Cole. It should be noted that the psychiatric interviews are not in and of themselves legally admissible for purposes of grand jury presentments leading to further murder charges against Joseph G. Christopher. If he is tried on any of the remaining indictments, and if any future jury were to find him not responsible by reason of mental disease or defect, that verdict could result in his being removed from the custody of the State Commissioner of Corrections and delivered to the custody of the State Department of Mental Hygiene which would have the power to retain custody of him until he is deemed cured. Thus, the possibility of complicating and or compromising the defendant's current incarcerative status by an intervening mental health hospitalization adds a separate and distinct dimension of risk to repetitive prosecutions at this stage in the case. It is our conclusion that Joseph G. Christopher likely will never again menace the citizenry of New York State. It is also our conclusion that further prosecution of this defendant will not enhance the interests of justice. 
a horrible chapter in the history of New York State should be closed. Joseph G. Christopher should stay removed from the province of the courts and left to the province of the state correctional system. Not long after the trial, Tom Awanu went out for lunch one day and thought about the Christopher case. When he returned to the office, he thanked the district attorney for the privilege of serving and politely handed in his resignation. Brian Joseph went to see Joe Christopher at the holding center. In spite of his professional reserve, Dr. Joseph felt bad. He felt bad that he hadn't been able to save Joe, either from himself or from the system. He had known Christopher through several phases of this young man's life, as a hostile and suspicious 25-year-old indicted for multiple murders, as a convicted killer shuffled between prisons and psychiatric hospitals, as a 31-year-old on medication that helped restore him to the gentle man he'd once been. Doctor and patient spoke cordially for a few minutes. Of all the words they exchanged over the years, Brian Joseph would best remember the last ones Joe Christopher ever said to him. Thank you for what you tried to do for me, doctor. Dr. Joseph wished him well. He said goodbye to Joe Christopher for the last time and walked away. He kept walking until he was out of the holding center. For the moment, he needed to be anywhere else but here. Epilogue Do you know how to drive a dog crazy? Put him in a box and beat the box with a stick every now and then. They tell me time is the healer of the mind. I hope that is true. If I do not know love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Joseph Christopher, Letter to His Mother, 1981 Joseph Christopher served a total of 12 years in jails and New York prisons. He died on March 1, 1993 at Great Meadow Correctional Facility. Cause of death was testicular cancer that had spread to his stomach and lungs. He was 37 years old. The cancer went untreated until the late stages, when, according to family members, he was in so much pain that he couldn't lie down. Some press accounts incorrectly stated his cause of death as male breast cancer. In the six years between his final conviction and his death, Joe spent periods of time in psychiatric facilities when his schizophrenia required more medical attention than prison staff could provide. Commenting at the time of Christopher's death, Edward Cosgrove said, God bless his soul, but he was an unfortunate wretch. Kevin Dillon, Christopher's first Buffalo attorney, said of him, There's not much doubt he was a very, very disturbed person. He could sit in a jail cell with his eyes closed, and two hours after the guard came on, Christopher could tell him what time it was. He could tell by constantly tapping his foot. How many hundreds of thousands of dollars did Judge Marshall, Judge Flynn, and the district attorney cost taxpayers by running roughshod over him to get this to trial? Mark Mahoney wondered, adding, Nobody ever ruled out the possibility that Christopher had delusionally popped himself into these cases. According to Charles Patrick Ewing, professor at the University of Buffalo School of Law, 
The insanity defense is rarely raised, rarely applicable, and even more rarely successful. And when it does succeed, the defendant usually loses his or her liberty for many years, sometimes for life. Ewing is an attorney, forensic psychologist, and author regarded as one of the leading experts on the insanity defense. Every time a defendant pleads insanity, the case makes headlines. In those rare instances in which a defendant is actually found insane, the public is usually outraged. In his book, Insanity, Murder, Madness, and the Law, Ewing addresses the misconception that a successful insanity defense often leads to a shorter period of incarceration. In most cases, a defendant acquitted by reason of insanity will spend more time locked up than a defendant who is found guilty. Being found insane almost always results in an indeterminate, sometimes lifetime, commitment to a secure mental hospital. And most of these hospitals are much more like prisons than treatment facilities. Interestingly, Professor Ewing's analysis proved to be true with the high-profile murder case that preceded Christopher's 1986 retrial. John Justice was found not guilty by reason of insanity in the deaths of his father and brother, but guilty in the intentional murder of his mother and depraved indifference in the death of motorist Wayne Hahn. Released from prison nearly 30 years later, having served his sentence, he was thereafter involuntarily committed to a secure psychiatric facility at the request of the state. Former prosecutor Tom Uwanu became a criminal defense attorney. In 2016, the Buffalo News cited Uwanu as one of the ten most prominent criminal defense attorneys in western New York. Looking back on the case of Joseph Christopher, Uwanu said, this is a classic example of the criminal justice system handling a tragedy where there is an enormous mental health issue. The underlying thing is not criminality at all. It's not. The system failed him. He committed horrific crimes, and there's no excuse. But the flip side is that our system was not equipped to handle Joe Christopher. In his 1989 book, Unnatural Death, Confessions of a Medical Examiner. Celebrity pathologist Michael Baden devoted a few pages of a chapter to the case of Joseph Christopher. Baden's only real connection to the case was a brief trip to Buffalo for the purpose of conducting second autopsies on Parlor Edwards and Ernest Jones, which, according to a ranking detective present, added nothing new to what the first medical examiner had already discerned. Baden's account of the case is so thoroughly riddled with errors of both major and minor proportion that one wonders if he didn't confuse Joseph Christopher with some other case. While it hardly seems worthwhile to address all the mistakes, there is one claim that cries out for correction. Baden writes that while Joseph Christopher was in the Fort Benning stockade, he performed fellatio on black prisoners in return for extra food. By all other accounts, including records and personal recollections of men who were actually in the stockade at the time or supervising it, this claim is false. Baden uses this claim to assert a Freudian-esque theory that Christopher killed black men because he was physically attracted to them, 
and wanted to destroy the thing that was tempting him. A psychiatrist very familiar with Christopher and the case bluntly labeled this a crackpot theory. While Baden is, of course, entitled to his theories, the premise on which it is based is false. By all credible accounts, and as a matter of pure logic, Christopher spent most of his stockade time in solitary, and further, his behavior was so unpredictably violent and bizarre that other prisoners didn't want to go near him. The claim that he engaged in oral sex with men in the stockade is untrue. The number of victims killed by Christopher is a question that cannot be answered with certainty. There was little physical evidence to tie him to any of the murders, and his confessions were unreliable. As reporter Gene Warner wrote following his jailhouse interview with Christopher, he truly didn't seem to know how many people he had killed. As far as is known, Christopher first mentioned a number in regard to his victims when speaking to Army nurse Bernard Burgess, telling the nurse that he'd killed 13 people in Buffalo and New York City. Around the same time, Joseph told his Army guard, Christopher Corwin, that he had killed seven people in Buffalo and more in New York. Thirteen is also the number he gave to Gene Warner. He also told Warner that Glenn Dunn had not been the first victim. A day or two before the shooting of Dunn, Christopher claimed to have stabbed a man in the throat. Christopher said he didn't know how badly this unknown man had been hurt, that he may not have even been hurt badly. However, it's difficult to imagine anyone being stabbed in the throat and not being badly hurt, particularly knowing the fate of Christopher's other knifing victims. He stabbed with force and deadly intent. An educated guess on Christopher's named murder victims, Glenn Dunn, Harold Green, Emmanuel Thomas, Joseph McCoy, Roger Adams, all in Buffalo, Wendell Barnes, Rochester, Luis Rodriguez, Antoine Davis, Richard Renner, Carl Ramsey, New York City. His statement to Army personnel that he killed seven people in Buffalo can add up in one of two ways. If, in addition to the five named above, the list includes Albert Menefee and the unknown male he claimed to have stabbed prior to the Dunn homicide, or by including Albert Menefee and Wendell Barnes. Though Barnes was killed in Rochester, about an hour's drive from Buffalo, Rochester is still generally within the western New York region. Christopher may have thus considered him a Buffalo victim. Though Albert Menefee survived, it's reasonable to assume that Christopher thought he had killed him at the time he made the statement. Christopher returned to Fort Benning on January 2nd, when Menefee was in critical condition and not expected to survive. Indeed, the Buffalo police had already opened a file titled Albert Menefee Homicide and had homicide detectives assigned to the case. In a letter he sent to the Buffalo News in 1983, Christopher cryptically wrote of his crime spree. So it was a baseball game, 17 hits and 13 dead, if they are dead. Asked to explain the meaning of this, he told Gene Warner, I supposedly attacked 17 people and 13 of them are dead. Again, only an educated guess can be made on his claim of 17 hits. 
or total gun and knife attacks. In order of occurrence, unknown male, Glenn Dunn, Harold Green, Emmanuel Thomas, Joseph McCoy, John Adams, Ivan Frazier, Luis Rodriguez, Antoine Davis, Richard Renner, Carl Ramsey, Roger Adams, Wendell Barnes, Albert Menefee, Calvin Crippen, Leonard Coles. In addition, a black male reported fighting off a stabbing attempt by a white man on a Manhattan subway on Christmas Eve, 1980. This would bring the total to 17. Christopher later made statements about having grappled with a man on a subway. This could indicate his involvement in the Christmas Eve attack. He could also have been referring to Ivan Frazier, who followed Christopher off the train and pushed him against the door. Christopher always denied that he attacked Calvin Crippen. Crippen, however, identified Christopher and insisted that he was the attacker. It would seem that neither man had a reason to lie. One of them must have been mistaken, or perhaps delusional. Some have opined that the real answers were forever lost with the death of Joseph Christopher. It could be, however, that the answers were forever lost long before his death, askew and unrecoverable from the murky depths of a diseased mind. In 2011, the Buffalo Police Cold Case Unit received an unsolicited tip on the Edwards and Jones murders. A detective looked at the case files and determined that the tip merited further attention. After reading the files, the detective similarly felt that Joseph Christopher could not have been the murderer. With a rolling of the eyes, the detective commented, he wouldn't even have needed a lawyer. Even I could have defended him. The detective passed the tip along to the New York State Police. As of this writing, the murders of Parler Edwards and Ernest Jones remain unsolved. We hope you have enjoyed our presentation of Absolute Madness, a true story of a serial killer, race, and a city divided, by Catherine Pellinero. Performed by Laurel Merlington. Context of white supremacy. 
Rick James, we are all done. Catherine Pellinero, absolute madness. Glad that we did take the extra uh, week to get information in. That way we didn't have to skimp on fondling Father Freeman. Uh, and everybody has their opportunity to get in final thoughts, observations uh, for the text. The number to dial 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I will take a bow, literally. Much obliged, much obliged. Thank you, Still Coon of the Year. I know, yes. Uh, if it were not for O.J. Simpson, easily, I would say this is the best job that I have done facilitating a book club. Uh, if it were not for O.J. Simpson, research, like I was so proud of getting uh, the segment, Tony Brown's Journal, uh, where they talked about it's their national conspiracy and talking about this case and connecting it to Atlanta, I think that's so important. She didn't include that uh, in this text at all. And, and to get people that live right in Buffalo, black people who live right in uh, Buffalo uh, to talk about folks right there at the Buffalo uh, Challenger, Miss Allen, to talk about uh, what happened and Mr. Pitts uh, to talk about what they were seeing live time uh, in their views. I thought that was so important. Fondling Father Freeman. I thought that was so important uh, as well. Uh, since that's not included in the text, that's something we talk about it all the time. White people not caring uh, about children, the black press, the late Chet Fuller, phenomenal work that he did. And now that it's been three months since the May 14 Tops massacre, and I have not seen really almost diddly about the 22 caliber killings. And I mean, the amount of overlap between these two cases mental illness tops grocery store insanity defense oh, on and on it's just go are you serious he wasn't a racist all of that all of it right there and not mentioned at all so if it wasn't for oj simpson and there's just a lot more material on the oj simpson case so i mean hey and i mean hey if there is going to be another one uh job to do on a project for a book club why not the juice but i mean for second place wow much obliged for the folks who contributed we had folks who sent information on buffalo and listened in wrote their thoughts views i said this one was mandatory so i mean geez that right there hey for folks who listened in gus said it was mandatory and then has the audacity to get uppity and say this has been he's done great work facilitating what have you learned did gusty waste your time for three months dragged all these other white professors in mostly from buffalo and other areas to talk about this ignorant lame town sorry anybody's got connections there but yeah. uh did he waste your time is Joey 22 has he helped you understand what it means to be white even anything about Peyton Gendron and why these events happened in May of this year what did you learn if anything the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 
if you would like to participate the email until justice at gmail dot com until justice at gmail dot com I asked online why do people think since Pelinero at least my conclusion she is so forceful insisting this is not a racist Joey is not a racist he was a victim of mental illness he just didn't get the help that he needed if that's her assessment that's her conclusion about all of this why does she include so much detail about racism in this book we got the racist dog right Kenny Paulson doesn't want to identify Joey because he's white. They had to, you know, grapple with him as an uncooperative witness. Uh, a la, what's my man from OJ uh, Simpson? Forgot it. Cato. Yes. Uncooperative witness, right? Uh, we got uh, Uncle Laverne, Kindred Spirit. They go and take down the basketball hoops. The extremely racist dad, Nicholas Christopher shooting at black people pedestrians as they go through the neighborhood I mean there's so much did the guards who are cheering him on right on Joey we should have got more of them thank you thank you thank why does she include all of that there's way more detail in this book about white supremacy racism than in any other book or documentary on this subject matter if you want to learn about racism white supremacy and the 22 caliber killings this is the book to read I've read four on it and they're not it's not even close it's not even close this one has way more detail about the white supremacy racism of these events really than all of the other books and films combined why did she do that if this is not even a racism thing this is a mental illness thing what do you think 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate Rick James mm. uh, I will read one comment with the, uh, listener answered my question and he was one of the folks I said we had so many folks who shared information about Buffalo and articles on Joey and other aspects of Buffalo and white supremacy which feel free to continue to share because I mean this is our area of interest now Louisiana Katrina is certainly one this is another like forever tell white supremacy racism has been solved uh, or you know long as we're on the air Buffalo for sure should be one and the Peyton Jenner that was another reason why we wanted to read this hey make sure people forgot right that's what they said nobody remembers nobody's heard anything about Joey 22 let's make sure we pay attention to the upcoming trial next court appearance October 6th for Peyton Jenner and might see if I can be in Buffalo for that day maybe I can be at the hearing hmm. alrighty the one email I'll read right now then I'll get to the rest get to the callers uh, one of our listeners, he wrote in, Greetings, Gus T. This text personally has greatly increased my understanding of the mechanism of learned behavior from birth of the race soldier 
who displays their form of racism, white supremacy, and armed militarized acts of terrorism. How the system can compartmentalize information, use trauma, then use deception so victims forget events. I appreciate the book club in general on your program. Being able to read the text, then compare interpretations and conclusions with other victims has been beneficial to dealing with confusion. From you linking Christopher to Gendron and the text Absolute Madness has led to other texts showing this pattern. The Fondling Freeman, a critical factor in racism, white supremacy, pertaining to pedophilia and white culture a consistent show of evidence to expose a behavioral norm very disturbing but expected worldview given the empirical proof of marimba Ani's work Urugu not that it needs it uh, let's see all right on and then they have the other much obliged for your commentary other folks if you what did you learn particularly if you have any folks if you hung out and listened to the book club or read along if you read the book right uh, based on us talking about it and what have you what did you learn final takeaways from the text again why do we think she included so much commentary on white supremacy racism if this is really an issue of mental illness folks who dialed in with a hand up Line should be open. Uh, feel free. Can I be heard? Bay Area mom. Uh, it was she and I. Oh, we had the caller last week. So now it's three of us have said, hey, this Uncle Laverne thing is interesting too. All the homoeroticism in this book. Bay Area mom. Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you. Um, greetings to you and everyone participating in the program. So before I forget to answer the question um, about why would the author um, add so much uh, um, commentary on racism, white supremacy, if it was just mental health, I, just from listening to the um, book, believe that that's her job to cover up. So she left all, kind of gave all the proof just to show it's just a, it's just a mental illness. So she gave all of that for other white people. I believe this book was written for white people to show them, even if you do all this stuff, it's mental issues. It's not race. That, that's to me because it just seems like it's all about covering up him being a racist and more about making it um, he didn't get the mental health uh, care he begged for. He went. He went. Before he did one of the killings that they announced, he said, hey, take me in. Cole, I need some help. Nah, no medicine. I don't want any of this, any of that. No one knows what really happened when he allegedly, so he said, went for help. But that's, uh, main, that's a main topic in the book, how he was failed mental health. So when white people do these kind of um, events, it's all mental health. Every time you, they do stuff to us, oh, he was crazy. Oh, he went crazy. Oh, you know, he was uh, madness. And just they use all these words for Looney. He just snapped, and I don't know what happened after that. He, and then with his dad, so, hey, did him and dad go kill some blacks? Is that why he? nobody knows how many um, blacks he killed? Did him and um, Laverne? 
what 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 really went on, right? And how is it that we're blaming his dad? He's not racist. Mom's not racist. Mom's married to a racist, procreating with a racist, lives with a racist until he dies and mourns the racist, but she's not racist. Even with the girls having a taste for chocolate, right? That doesn't mean you're not racist. So, um... It just makes me wonder what was really going on and then how the whole everyone stuck together to not with him. And then also the book, it just wasn't. It didn't look like him. Why would he do that? Mr. Magoo, come on. No, not him. And, and every, oh, I would have, are we in the right courthouse? So it's just, just all of that. And it just, it just feeds the white mind. It's nothing, it's nothing wrong. Okay. It's, it, you have a mental breakdown. You are not racist. That's what it just seems like it tells me. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So look at the Arthur. So at the end, at, at the end when she was saying that, um, oh, so even the guy that, that said she identified him. Hmm. I, I don't believe it. I think he was mistaken. And the white guy's delusional. So that's what the words were. Mistaken was for the black one because he made a mistake in identity. Because why would he lie? Neither one of them, the murderer or the black guy victim, had a reason to lie. What, why would they lie? So the black guy, when I say he's a liar, I know something happened. He's mistaken identity. And this guy, if he did, if anything, he's delusional. If anything happened, okay. And then just the joke of it all. The nursery rhyme of what seventeen, thirteen. Just all this, the, the riddles in it, allegedly, because you know you've killed more. You've probably been killing blacks since you were a kid with your dad. Um, And then with the heart, I always thought throughout the book, he learned a lot of those surgical procedures because his mother was a nurse. So I think he had an interest in, because he totally looked, sounded like he was in love with his mother a little Valentine. So I don't know if that, how they what kind of relationship they had, but I believe he learned a lot of the skills from the interest in his mother being a nurse to me. So I believe he he could have had help, too. I'm not saying he didn't have help. I'm just saying he did kill some blacks. I, I know he had help, and I don't mean just help with these murders. I just mean all over the globe. They all help each other kill us, and they all take up for each other, even in honor in his name. After he dies, he died of cancer so he didn't have he wasn't getting poisoned now he had stomach the cancer that he had spread to his stomach and his what lungs just so but i thought you said he was delusional because he was making it up in his head that someone was poisoning him i i, I just so that's my thing i'll I'll get off um I'll, I'll get off i don't mean to um ramble i just thought it was just this whole thing was I loved it. And no, you didn't waste time. I, I totally uh, needed this this book. Um, and I will keep up with the uh, New York case. And um, this wasn't a waste of time. It was right on time. And thank you. I'll mute my line. I'll pop back in, but I'll mute it now. Yes, ma'am. You are unmuted. Um, she said, Mr. Magoo is in the courtroom. I'm done the young people out there not with us folks like what who what did you say you can you youtube 
Mr. Magoo. Mr. Magoo is in the courtroom. He's not a serious. What's wrong with you? This guy's all right. He just needs a little medication and he'll be fine. But she says cover up. She says that's her theory on uh, what Catherine Pellinero was doing with this here book. Include all this racism and what have you and details and all that racist dog and, and all the rest of Uncle Laverne and they're taking the, the basketball goals down and all of that. She says it's cover up. That's all there. You can do all this stuff and even killing black people. You're not racist. Mental illness. And she said, I mean, Jesus, how can you argue? She says this book is written for white people I'm not insulting her it's just make sure that we all think about that duh because none of us even knew who he was so obviously none of us read this book so I don't think she had us in mind I don't think she was thinking hey that worthless negro in Virginia has a book club maybe they'll read my book I don't think that was her thought process so even that Wow. White people wanted to read this book? Hmm. You all should check, see if this book is in your local library, especially in New York. New York State, I mean. See if it's in your library, university library, community college library, school library, public library. See if it's there. See if it's checked out go get it and see if it looks red does it look like a lot of people have flipped through this book or does it look kind of brand new it's about five years old six years old now but keep that in mind now that we maybe I should have said that from the beginning she obviously New York Times best selling author this is not her first book she did not write this for us I don't think Matt Greider wrote Joey 22 for us either other folks who dialed in with a hand up commentary to share proceed Maybe folks are taking some time to get their thoughts together. I'll read uh, some of our other emails, then I'll check in again, see if folks there. Uh, one of our uh, investors uh, wrote in. I didn't get to finish all of his commentary from last week because we didn't finish the book. Get the rest of it. Uh, picking up point number seven. We did the first six last week. Christopher, though, there was a gulf in the way he'd been portrayed to the community as a monster. He, I even have to pause right there like that bothers me so much like I said if it wasn't for OJ Simpson this easily like if you've facilitated a book club for a decade Negro give me the best one you've done if it wasn't for OJ Simpson this would be the one I would point to juice anyway uh Part of that is, hey, we have not done a book club where I can say now just on this case, not Buffalo in general, just this case. Hundreds of articles that I've looked at 
have on my going through the archives, the catacombs and digging and have not done that for most of the book clubs. I did do some of that for uh, what did we just finish? Dear Senator S.E. May Washington Williams. I did do some of that for that book there, but not to the level of this case. From that, looking at all those that, hey, it was not. Oh my God, this beast. The Buffalo Beast. They didn't do all that nicknames. We read O.J. Simpson. He was nicknamed the Brentwood Butcher. They didn't do that with Joey. I read you the titles of the Friends, Mystified, Good Soldier, Loner, Christian, Friends, Doubt Charges. That's what they said. It wasn't, oh, my God. God, he's a killer. Uh, my, they didn't even say racist. Like I said, she says that throughout the book, he was falsely portrayed as a racist and a monster. That is a total lie. They have the same sort of comment commentary that she's had in the book, in the newspapers from that time, 1980s, and it's widespread. Oh, his mother, and they'll have big art, uh, pictures of her. Like, oh, poor Teresa Christopher. <laughs> oh, she's such a... You heard it in the news. I played it at the beginning. Archival footage. Oh, poor Teresa Christopher. She's a kindly Christian. Well, she's not even Christian. She's with the pedophile, child-raping Buffalo Diocese. Either way, kindly white Catholic Therese Christopher. Oh, she's a victim. Oh, we got to feel sorry for her. Are you, are you out of your flipping mind? So I reject that. That is a huge part of the lie that, oh, he was portrayed as a racist and a monster. Wrong lie. Always got to be the victim. So I'll start over with that point. He was quoting from the book here, by the way, just oh, so galling. I had to say something immediately. Christopher, though, there was a guilt in the way he had been portrayed to the community as a monster. He became a racist overnight, and that was, I guess, just where his fears or delusions or whatever had led him. I mean, I don't think there was any rational connection between race and what he did. It was so not fact-based. He was raised by a racist in a racist neighborhood since when do racists need to be rational or need facts to practice racism speak logic man speak lot even for Pelinero, like man this in my opinion is heavyweight race soldiering even writing a book like this where is harold green's mother at I don't want to hear anything about Teresa Christopher. You married an extreme racist and had children with him. You live in a house with somebody who comes out, nigra, pow. And matter of fact, you live with multiple white people. Nigra, pow. They are known for doing that. You married one and gave birth to the other. Why should I think of you as anything other than a racist? That right there is, I mean, hey, huge, and it's huge on so many levels, what we've been talking about for 13 years. You can't have a system of white supremacy racism without white women. What sort of universe do you all live in where you think Klan member taking down the basketball hoops where the negras live, negra this, negra that another racist in the neighborhood, we live in a whole neighborhood of racists racist jokes all day long we have a daughter she 
has a thing for chocolate cowbell. Oh, my God, we got to do something about that. You, you are my white offspring. You are supposed to do something about that. You go beat that nigger down. Tar baby coon. But Teresa is a kindly Christian, Catholic, lovely, not racist white. What, are you serious? Come on. With the, with the, the tacky matter, they say the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. The other tacky one they say is, hey, the mother. They don't say Nicholas. They don't say the dad. They say the mother is the first teacher. From what I read in this book, she hung out with racists and rapists. Child rapists, be specific. Number eight, Tom Ianu would take, would look at the defendant. This is very sad. Oh, <laughs> he was doubly haunted by the memory of John Justice. The thought began eating away at him. These are two very sick people, incredibly sick human beings, and we're trying to hang them from the highest post are you serious man i'm so glad the coon who hosts this program has been saying almost ooh, from day one yes you can go back to oh nine and check from day one metaphors who was hung anywhere in this book did i miss that was i asleep at the post i sat here and bragged about doing a great job facilitating did we have a lynching in this book where was the news Hanging from the highest post. What are you talking about? Death penalty? Did he get a death penalty sentence somewhere? I missed that. All oh, the metaphors. Come on. Uh, number nine. Brian Joseph went to see Joseph Christopher at the holding center. Dr. Joseph felt bad. He felt bad that he hadn't been able to save Joe. He had known Christopher through several phases of this young man's life as a hostile and suspicious 25-year-old indicted for multiple murders, as a convicted killer shuffled between prisons and psychiatric hospitals, as a 31-year-old on medication that helped restore him to the gentle young man he'd once been. <laughs> like, I can't even read that with a straight... You mean like when he was at the gun club banging his gun down mad because he missed the target is that what you mean when he was when he was wrestling and fooling around with ernie and blaming him on stealing his knife like when exactly are you talking about jesus christ the sympathy expressed by suspected racists for this psychopath is nauseating <laughs> couldn't say it better epilogue number one Baden writes that while Joseph Christopher was in the Fort Benning stockade, he performed fellatio on black prisoners in return for extra food. This claim is false. Baden uses, uses this claim to assert a Freudian-esque theory that Christopher killed black men because he was physically attracted to them and wanted to destroy the thing that was tempting him. A psychiatrist familiar with Christopher and the case bluntly labeled this a crackpot theory. Boom! He actually wrote that. Even if you accept that the fellatio claim is false, there is enough indirect anti-sexual behavior in the text to make this a viable theory. 
but trust oh no oh no but trust by the additional information on father freeman i was saying i did have my chest out like oh i found that whole 20 minute interview uh that tony brown's journal did uh with miss uh allen and uh mr pitts buffalo challenger national conspiracy buffalo was a part of it great but man i would i can only tell you if we had finished this book and i had not taken time to check and say wait a minute is father freeman one of these child raping catholic priests that they've been talking about i would have excoriated gus t like what a worthless coon like oh my god i can't believe he didn't even look like lazy shiftless yeah that is important there's so much what did i just say the fooling around with ernie what don't let me forget what we were going out looking for prostitutes and we're like what do what street workers that's what they're like all over the way yes then the five and the boy scouts it's just over and the homoeroticism abounds throughout the text Uh, let's see I found the text very constructive the information is very important to me if for no other reason than I am a black male who lived in New York City during the period of Christopher's rampage I think the incident demonstrates the power of the global system of racism white supremacy to dictate what is important and what should be remembered excited for the next book club selection I read the book when it first came out Oh, that's Second Wind, I think. He's talking about, uh, but can't find it. Hmm. Might be worth some money. Yes, that book. If you're talking about Second Wind, find it immediately. That book is worth a man. Cow's listeners have been complaining. Like when I mentioned, like, oh, man, Bill Russell died. Like, we should read that book. Uh, we're going to read that book. Uh, and so they're like, oh, let me go get a copy. Let me find it. Man, they were saying, wow, this book. They I talk about inflation. They were talking about like $200, $300, which I'm not surprised because I think Second Wind might be out of print. So they really like charge you out of the wazoo. Anyway, uh, it'll be interesting to read it again now that I have a little better understanding of racism, white supremacy. For sure. The great Bill Russell. Uh, Much obliged. uh, His commentary, the anti-sexual behavior uh, in this book, I also thought was super important there's so much of it that comes up even without that that came up in the stockade anyway where he was saying that to the officer who was saying hey you got a reputation are you saying this just to get in trouble and all the rest of it like whatever get out of here and the bedwetting all of that like they're doing something to impugn my manhood that's why i gotta attack them they're calling me a faggot and all anywho let's see uh much obliged our investor wrote in other folks uh with a hand up if you have commentary to share line should be open may i be hurt yes sir yes thank you Gus, for taking my call and greetings everybody online um yeah this book is definitely interesting um i learned a great deal um about buffalo uh through the whole course um the different interviews you've uh you've had um, but definitely um, the mental illness and mental disease and, and uh, defect uh, defense they're trying to use. I wonder with something like that they'd be using that uh, the Daryl Brook uh, Daryl Brooks uh, case where the guy ran over those people in the parade. I wonder if they're going to try to use that. That can be used there. Um, 
uh, yeah, I think it was um, Richard or Kyra, I believe, who talked about some kind of treatment for Joey. I mean, if he was going around stabbing uh, anyone else besides black males um, or black people in general, um, could you treat him and cure him? I mean, I just, that whole notion that um, what he was doing was something beyond his control, which is um, further insanity, um, if, if people tend to believe it. Um, and I say that because um, uh, he, I believe he said the dates were September 19th when he tried to join the military, and then uh, September 22 when he killed Glenn Dunn. To me, that looks like an escape uh, escape plan uh, to do a crime and then, I, I guess, escape and um, uh, to go and also going to the part, um, I believe, uh, Dave J. David J. He gave the closing arguments. He was saying um, uh, he killed and feel powerful, and uh, it was to gain self-esteem. That reminded me of what uh, the the fear of white genetic annihilation. How you have to kill um, uh, the black male. Uh, it's still powerful because of the uh, genetic material. Um, uh, the book was named Absolute Madness, and um, he grew up around pretty much all white people. Um, uh, would that could you say that growing up around white people can lead to madness for for everyone, not just you know white people, non-white people as well? Um, and uh, and I think you asked a question earlier about wasting time. No, no, I don't think this at all was a waste of time to, to do this project. Um, I didn't know about it at all, and um, I learned a great deal, again, from uh, different um, interviews. Um, so I appreciate uh, your selection, Gus, and kudos on the excellent um, in journalism that you did on this project. And, yeah, that'll be it. Thank you for taking my call. Much obliged. Before you depart, sir, when you say uh, an escape, you gave us the dates again. Uh, So he tries to enlist in the Army September 19, and he kills 14-year-old Glenn Dunn on the 22nd. When you say uh, that this was an escape, what do you mean? Um, I'm thinking that um, he had plans to do something, maybe not... uh, kill, I don't know, maybe kill, but I think this is a means of, for him to escape uh, uh, investigation from anyone. Uh, considering that, why would you join the military then, knowing that you joined the military, go and try to uh, commit any type of crime. I mean, I mean, the military normally kicks you out for, you know, all types of things, even having a flat feet or whatever. So it just, to me, that seemed like it was premeditated on uh, Joey's behalf. I see, said the blind man. Uh, that That is why I asked. Uh, so he would already have, like, bang, he can go do his killings of these black males, and then pew, I'm not even in Buffalo. They're around looking for a suspect. Where's this guy? Where's this guy? Kill the... Wait, I'm in Fort Benning. They don't even... And that that did happen. <laughs> like, hey, hey, if he had shut up, Matt Greider said that. Uh, no, if he had just been quiet in Georgia, 
they would have never got him in Georgia. They had a list. They said thousands of suspects for these Buffalo killings. He was not on that list. God, I didn't understand what he meant by escape, but I got if if that's what he planned, it worked. It worked beautifully. Like if he had just been quiet down there, he would have probably now none of the particularly. Hey, they that's how she wants to emphasize at the end. Nobody got charged. Mr. Jones, Mr. Edwards, the cabbie murders. Nobody got charged as a number of these other crimes. If he doesn't say anything, might have been nobody gets charged for any of these crimes. Escape. Now, that also, now, if he did, like, wow. Now, is that crazy? Context of white supremacy. Uh, Much obliged, sir. Let's see. Uh, So, I asked online as well, why do people think Palinero included all this material about racism in the book? Some of the folks, their responses. A couple reasons. I think she loves the word nigger. We leave him pause right there. How many times is the word nigger in this book? 38. Make of that what you will. Again, now, who is this book written for? No question white people I think she loves the word nigger even though he's an admitted serial killer of black males I honestly believe that she doesn't think a crime was committed there's no empathy at all for the victims or their families in this book absolutely Next, and I had not even thought of the number of times nigger is in this book. Now, again, the book that we had for the program yesterday, Curtis Wilkie, folks missed it. I couldn't uh, post on Facebook for 24 hours. They suspended me. Get to that later. Got my privileges back, sort of, I guess. Uh, but in that book, when evil lived in Laurel, I think nigger is in there over 200 times. But one of the characters is named nigger. So, you know, it's like on every page, sometimes two or three times each page. But for this book, 38 is a lot of negras for a book that is not about racism it's about mental health next person says uh, like you always say this is her practicing racism white supremacy she sounded so empathetic for Joey Next person wrote in the way her tone was in the book. It was as if she was treating Joey like some type of martyr for racism, white supremacy. I thought she was going to say mental health advocacy at first. Like, man, he was a victim and it's their fault. And if they had looked out for him, then this would have never happened. And all the rest like, come on. And incidentally, I will also add Matt Greider and others when they discuss these events, they give comparisons as Many black people did if you check the black press at the time and saying, hey, let's talk about mental health. When black people are paraded into these courts, they've told us repeatedly in the text that the prisons are stuffed with black males. They got to keep Joey safe for them, right? They said consistently, hey, you get these black people 
some of them have mental health problems can't be a victim of racism and have mental health Dr. Welsing Gail Trait she uh, the voodoo killings this happened in the exact same time as Joey and in fact Catherine Pellinero on her website has written about Gail Trait and these voodoo killings so called she killed her own children Gail Trait black mother they didn't you know oh my god this is a disgrace and mental illness she got convicted bang 25 years was in prison for a long time before they whoa think this is mental illness she needs some help although it was not that would have been the comparison right there as many black people at that time said now wait a minute you got a black mother where you say this is voodoo killing her own and I mean savagely killing her own children and you say oh no she knew what she was doing bang guilty 25 years and then you get and by the way if you go read on her website you do not see nearly the same level of empathy and oh isn't this terrible and oh poor Gail Trade, victim of white supremacy and oh her children this is just terrible none of that at all. Again, same thing I keep saying. Hey, did you talk to Harold Green's mother? Glenn Dunn's mother? Joseph McCoy? You did all these in bragged about how many interviews you did. I think she said it was 72. Man, all this time and how many snowmen Joey built as a child and what a sweet, loving, kind, generous, gentle fella he was. Definitely not racist. Do we have any of that for all of these black people? that got killed Louis Rodriguez Albert Menifee Wendell Barnes their relatives and what have you we gotta end with Joey he gets the last word of oh, poor Joey we'll let him go not even one of the victims we begin the book with the enforcement officers who again if Joey hadn't blabbed they would have been totally lame and ineffective didn't even have him on their list of suspects. Incidentally, two of the books that I read about this, Matt Greider, White Man, Catherine Pellinero's book, both of them, the, or what do they call it? The, uh, say shout out. It's not called a shout out. Uh, they do some sort of, uh, this book is, is going to be uh, recognized or, you know, whatever, shout out for the lack of better term for time being. It's the police officers, Edward Cosgrove and what have Leo Donovan, excuse me, Cosgrove was the attorney. Leo Donovan and what have you, like, are you serious? I think Ed Cosgrove is. He was the prosecuting attorney. Like, are you serious? Like, what did these guys do? Cosgrove got his conviction overturned. Leo Donovan didn't even think that Joey uh, did the cabbie murder. So, I mean, what? why would they get a dedication? That's what I was looking for, groping for, dedication. Why would they get a dedication? Palinero her father's in law enforcement but I mean still so what why not a dedication to some of the family members of the victims we start off giving a shout out to the police and then we end giving the last word to Joey letter to his mom racist both of them (laughs) racist writing to a racist that's how we get to end get some of my notes on the last section of the in fact before I get to that one I will include, I did so, looked at so many reports for this, I didn't even get to read everything that I thought was uh, important. 
This was definitely one. So many layers of white supremacy racism, and even important for the program that we had yesterday, Curtis Wilkie, uh, 82-year-old white man suspected racist, talking about the death of the Klan. What a lie, just on what we read in this book. They burned a cross in the middle of this. Remember that? That's in this book. They thought the Klan might have been involved in this. Remember that? The Klan marched in Buffalo, January 1981. They didn't even have a King holiday at that time. And they marched on Dr. King's birthday, January 15, in Buffalo. Talking about the Klan is dead. This, I'm reading from uh, the Buffalo Courier Express, November, November 5, 1980. So at this point, no one has been caught in. If our caller who said, hey, I think Joey had an escape plan, already knew I'm going to kill some niggers. I'm going to go enlist in the army. That way I can go do my killings. I'll be out of town. I'll be gone for they even know what happened, which is pretty much how it went. Uh, If that was his plan, he's already getting ready to be out in Georgia. And so you got all these black bodies. Nobody's going to be indicted for this until April. So they're, you know, oh, my God, what's going on? They're going to terrorize the folks at Glenn Dunn's funeral. Remember that? crosses burn I just said total there's the madness white supremacy racism right this is November 5 19 this is right Ronald Reagan I think might have been elected on this very day wacky many object to the channel 2 series on KKK if you caught the front segment of this week's channel 2 newscast series a flashback packed ditty dubbed Loathe Thy Neighbor. You're aware of how sensitive a package this is, right? It's about as sensitive as Dick Butkus in his prime with the Chicago Bears as Vancouver's Tiger Williams when he's massaging a saber scalp. As Ralph Wilson when he ba- when he hears a Bill's plea for more money an inside Buffalo black community judging from calls to this column the series spotlighting white power in general and the Ku Klux Klan in particular is about as popular as bad breath when WGR TV news chief Jim Will first served up storm warnings of this five parters arrival last week I found myself wondering out loud one, why give an outrageous racist organization organization such as the KKK five nights of newscast publicity in Buffalo? And two, is this just more sensationalism during a rating period? They go on to quote Jesse Jackson and all the rest and talking about how inappropriate uh, this is uh, to have this series sex isn't selling and why we need to have this on and all the incidentally news week had just like literally days before end of October had a segment about fear in the black community. And in the same report, they had a big article on the Klan and their arming and militarizing and making threats to kill black people and police officers. So this is the whole time period of this. Uh, I don't think this report is in the book either, but I just thought that was so clowning, like to already have black people terrorized. And at the same time, the Atlanta child murders are happening. People thought the Klan was doing that, too. 
to have all of this happening at the same time. And then, oh, what's going to be on TV? A whole week worth of Klan television reports. Wow. How in Buffalo, no less. Wow. Hmm. And Ronald Reagan was elected. Great times. All right. So notes for the segment from this week. Uh, let's see. Tommy, I I can't honestly say he shared the same sympathy as I did. He's talking about uh, prosec- fellow prosecutor Al Ramey. Everybody has to sympathize with Joey. He's just such a likable dude, I guess. He goes on to say, in my opinion, it wasn't the right thing to do to put this young guy through this trial. I remember Al saying there was a lot of cognizant awareness in what he'd done. Planning. That's what I said. If you're loony, you just go out, shoot somebody. You're not going to be being all evasive and using a bag to contain the shells. You can try to make sure you don't leave evidence and already having your escape route planned and everything. You just go out. And even the, why would you switch up and go do these knifings, right? Just continue. I'm the 22 caliber killing. I love guns. That's what I do. Why do you need to be stealth? How would you even understand that if you are loony? Nah. Culpable, uh, culpable, as they say. Criminally culpable for what he's doing. And I do not sympathize with him. Even that, like, really? You write a whole book to convince us that we should sympathize with this fellow for being a mental health victim? Do they do such a thing for black people? Where's the book for Gail Trait? This is a mom. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Barther questioned him further about his actions and feelings at the time. Joe's overriding memory was feeling constant fear. I think the caller said that fear. White genetic annihilation. I didn't know why black men are out to get me. Hmm. Let's see. Next page. Uh, They're going to hang this guy again, that metaphor. Death penalty? Really? Is there the lynching going on here? Really? Where? Let's see. Christopher, though, there was a gulf in the way he'd been portrayed to the community. Talked about that one already. That you would have to show me the reports where this guy's a so-called monster, racist. Uh, they had the same level of sympathy that Pelinero has for Joey. They had in almost all of the newspaper reports. I even read some of the black newspaper reports. They're not calling him names and a racist and a monster and all of this. They're talking about why isn't this being covered? Uh, Let's see. Next. Ianu would look at the defendant at the defense table and think this is very sad. He was doubly haunted by the memory of John Justice. They have news reports on him. Incidentally, white man, uh, he was convicted, killing his family and all that. Then eventually uh, released to a mental mental institution. I guess that some of these killings, they said he was. Uh, mentally defective and then some of these others they did say he was criminally culpable but this is a white fella this uh, John Justice now again Buffalo apparently they stuff a lot of black males in prison I didn't hear any sympathy for them I really didn't hear a whole lot of sympathy for the black males who were killed they were you know numbers runners and drug addicts and all the rest of it Harold Green wasn't it car thieves Glenn Dunn Harold Green wasn't any of that he was just working going to school trying to be an engineer and eh. trying to stop get lunch eh. didn't get to hear how the letters that he wrote to his mom bring his mom in what did she think 
all these trials and everything, looking back, or other family members, relatives, what did they think? They get a final word for the book? Eh. They're these talking about John Justice and Joey, all these J's. They are two very sick people, incredibly sick human beings, and we're trying to hang the oh, target. Are you serious? And they're human. Orenthal James, the man not. Gail Trait, woman not. Joey, still a man, a white man. Uh, let's see. Give all this talk about how we're outspending the defense. Hey, I just said you got all these Negras, probably a number of them indigent, don't even have the funds of Teresa Christopher to go out and get an attorney. Where's the sympathy for them? You pack black males in all the time. In fact, it's standard operating procedure for the prosecution to way outspend. We talked about that even with the rental James and saying, hey, this is one of the few times where that's not the case where the defense does have a budget. But even then, L.A. had way more resources than a rental James. You get a white person here this time. That's all. And real talk, if this had happened now, they would have got on social media, go fund me, all the rest. Let's see if we can get some money for Teresa Christopher, help her with the defense fund for the 22 caliber killer. Let's see. Mm-mm-mm. All of this going into detail about Joey having schizophrenia allegedly, and sometimes you can have uh, catatonic schizophrenia and all the rest of it. Uh, Joey is not suffering from catatonic schizophrenia. If he was just uh, in a vegetative state, we wouldn't be having, we wouldn't be reading this book. Been talking about something else. All of this at obfuscation. This fella is criminally culpable. Go ahead, cop a plea, and let's move things forward. Let's see. She says, uh, or excuse me, the defense, David J., they asked the uh, jurors are present to the court. The laceration of his penis, all this to say that he's got some serious mental problems. Uh, the utter breakdown when he stabbed Leonard Coles in front of a dozen men in his army barracks. I don't think that's a breakdown. That's what he's seen his whole life. Violence against black people. His dad is shooting publicly at pedestrians, black pedestrians, when they pass, challenging him. Your daughter is going out here with these nigger boys. You got to do something about it. Now, I don't even know what that means. Kill him, stab him, what? Punch him, beat him up? Either way, I don't, in my view, that is not a mental breakdown. That's just what he's been doing. Accuse black people, falsely accuse, and that's what racists have done for generations. Falsely accuse black people, violently attack people. We just said we got a five-part series on the Klan. What do they do? Attack black people for no reason. Negros are out to get us. The Negros are causing us problems. Negro did this. He took my job or whatever else. Generations of that. Decades. Centuries, really, at this point. Leonard and Leonard Coles, he didn't have a breakdown. He said, Leonard Coles. Leonard Coles. Teasing me by wetting the bed emasculating me as it were that's what it was that's not a breakdown that's consistent in fact that what did we just say white 
genetic annihilation. Calling me a faggot. I said, Rick James, they call me a faggot. Eh, make a lyric out of that. Put that in the song. Hmm. Joey, and it's not even someone, it's when black males emasculate him. Now I got to kill Now what is that? Now I got to cut you. Didn't even get the right, wasn't even Leonard Coles. They said, they thought about it, said, dang, I think he got confused and thought old Leonard Coles was the one who had mocked him about wetting the bed and everything, and it wasn't even Leonard Coles. He just got confused. Wrong nigga. She continues, she says, uh, Al Rainey argued that Christopher's past behavior had demonstrated a knowledge of right and wrong as well as premeditation. Absolutely. And especially if we think, did he melt that gun down? Was he keeping up with the news reports? That's why he switches over to a knife, doesn't want to get caught. I don't want to hear anything about schizophrenia or anything else. Lock him up. Let's see. They can. T- uh, Barton says. Uh, Oh, wait a minute. This is not Barton. This is still the prosecution. Uh, Al Rainey says, you can conclude safely that he doesn't like blacks. Understatement of the decade. And this was a way for him to do something. Gain self-esteem. It sounds terrible, but he could gain pride and self-esteem. And that was his objective. He had to do something. Why not blacks? He didn't like them anyways since high school, probably well before. And he would get the thrill of it that's in the word guy thrill can I get a pause this is totally off topic but just because I'm reminding so thrilling is in the word guide. bang that's right on point the thrill of practicing racism the thrill of killing Negras. Ooh, the hunt I said she left that out that his jacket had blood stains on it that was reported in the newspaper but the thrill Go out and kill Gwen Dunn. Get away with it. Go on the subway. Kill. Stab a Negro. Get close to him. Pow. Luis Rodriguez never even know what happened. Pow. Roger Adams. Pow. Never even know what happened. Let's see. So he gets convicted uh, again, three counts of manslaughter in the first degree because of extreme emotional disturbance. Even that, like, are you serious? If, if Put it this way. This had been a rental James. This has been a Negro. Emotional disturbance. Really? I, I've never even heard that. <laughs> like emotional disturbance. Really? What, what? That's an option. Hmm. Let's see. She says, not long after the trial, Tommy Anu went out for lunch one day and thought about the Christopher case. When he returned to the office, he thanked the district attorney for the privilege of serving and politely handed in his resignation. Are you out of your flipping mind? He resigned. Now, that's what it would lead me to believe. He resigned because he was so outraged and then ultimately became a defense attorney, totally switched sides of the courtroom 
because of the treatment of Joseph G. Christopher, are you out of your flipping mind? He was railroaded. Scottsboro boys north this is. Are you out of your flipping racist mind? How many trials did this guy get? How many psychiatric evaluations and delays would a nigger have gotten this? That's not even an accurate comparison. Forgive me, Gus, I'm cooning. So if a nigger was accused, suspected of having killed 13 white people, attacked 17 white people, killed 13 of them, it would have been all this. <laughs> I can't even muster a chuckle. <laughs> Incidentally, I'm going to pause one more time. The only reason we read this book, the only reason Gusty even knew like a rudimentary amount about this case is because I studied the so-called Atlanta child murders. Wayne Williams, retired firefighter, he made one of the most brilliant observations about this case. Sometimes just making it plain and simple is best. He said, man, I think we might know a little bit at least about the Atlanta child murders and Wayne Williams because they blame that on somebody black. This is a white person. Painfully logical because they got like a billion documentaries and books on Wayne Williams. They got one lame documentary on this case and three books. One kind of halfway, but not really. It's basically a paper. So really three books. None of them at the University of Washington Library. And I think none of them at the Seattle Public Library. Two of them out of print. The one that is in print says he's not a racist. Mental health problems. I know about this case because I know about the Atlanta child murders. You want to know one other comparison between these two? Catherine Pellinero, suspected race soldier, that does a whole lot of lame whining about the fact that, oh, poor Joey is so messed up that they went in and used video footage of him admitting to the murders of Parlor Edwards, Shorty Jones, Ernest Shorty Jones. He wasn't even charged with those cases. That's so messed up, man. How can they go in and do that? Catherine Pellinero could have said, hey, the exact same thing happened in the case that she mentioned. The Atlanta child murders. They did the exact same thing with Wayne Williams. And I'm even tell you that one is way worse. In my view, Wayne Williams never confessed to anything. He said he was innocent from day one to today. Maybe. They went in and took evidence from 10 crimes against children that they never charged Wayne Williams or anyone else with and went into the trials against Wayne Williams for two adult black males and said, well, we got this carpet evidence. We got this carpet evidence for these other 10 pattern cases that we're not charging him for, but we think he did it in these, and it's just like these two that we are 
charging him for. We talked about that in Deach, and I said, you got to be out of your mind. You never charged anybody with these cases, exactly like Parler Edwards and Shorty Jones. But we're going to bring this up in the trial for Wayne Williams. Help us get a conviction with pseudoscientific bull carpet fiber nonsense. That's the same thing we talked about at the beginning of the year with Anthony Broadwater. She didn't even bring that up. And we talked about that with Chet Detlinger very first program when we came back on the air. He said, hey, that's messed up. He's a former attorney, Chet Denlinger, the late he's dead now. But he said, hey, I thought that was messed up, too, because they never charged anybody. If you think he did it, charge him. You got parents out there who say this is my child. Luby Jeter and what have you. If you think this is the evidence, charge him. Nope. But we're going to use this evidence to help convict him for these other cases. Stan, he said, hey, nothing incorrect, legally correct. Nothing wrong with that at all. I think it's lame. And he said, I think legally it shouldn't be. You should only have evidence for the case that you're going to be charged with. But he said, hey, in the case for Georgia, that is not the case. And apparently for Buffalo, legal is what. And difference, hey, Joey is confessing to criminal activity, which apparently he did repeatedly to various folks, admitting culpability in these murders. Wayne Williams, they don't have anything like that. They just took lame carpet fiber evidence. So, one, if you know enough about the Atlanta child murders, you've researched it, you see the connection, you bring it up in this case, if you're going to complain about it there, at least, hey, at least this is not a one-time thing. They did this in this other case, too. Let's see. Dr. Joseph wished Joey well. He said goodbye to Joe Christopher for the last time and walked away. He kept walking until he was out of the holding center for the moment. He needed to be anywhere else but here. Are you serious? I got a whimper and run out of the prison. Oh, poor Joey's the same what they've done. Scurry away. <laughs> Are you serious? Again, this book could have ended. Glenn Dunn's mother. Aunt. Cousin. Does he have siblings? Roger Adams, Joseph McCoy, do they have relatives? Albert Menifee, Parler Edwards, Ernest Shorty Jones, any of these folks, they got relatives, family members, friends. What's your lasting memory? What are your thoughts of all this? Nah. Poor Joe. Do they write any books like this about black people? Black kids, even black people who are victims of crimes. Do they write books like this? I don't I told you, I don't even hear Trayvon Martin. Tamir Rice. I don't hear them get discussed with this much sympathy. <laughs> President Obama, he's not a criminal. He's a blue gum monkey and a negro. How is it that we're talking about a white, a convicted white serial killer gets more sympathy than the average? In fact, the above average Negro, Michelle Obama, doesn't get talked about with this much sympathy. I don't ever remember somebody that Michelle Obama is a good person, smart, intelligent, gentle. She's a blue gum monkey. Literally, literally, literally. She's a blue gum monkey monkey they had to do newspaper articles talking about how you would google search her name and the image that would pop up and 
writing was monkey. And they had to explain why is that. She's not a killer. I'm not aware of her having a criminal record at all. Joey is in better standing than she. We got more sympathy for him than the former first lady. What it means to be white. What's in the epilogue? Uh, cancer went untreated in the late stage. I do see that. Widely reported. Newspaper reports everything that he died of a, a strange form of uh, breast cancer. She's saying it was testicular cancer, which even that is profound. Wow. All of this emasculation and I'm not a man and they're coming after me and all that. Woo. Let's see. They ran roughshod. Oh, Joey's been railroaded. Uh, she says, oh my God, Mark Mahoney, Mark Mahoney wondered, nobody ever ruled out the possibility that Christopher had delusionally popped himself into these cases. Pause right there. Madonna Gorney, a white woman, identified him at the scene of Glenn Dunn, 14-year-old black male who was described in this book generally not as a victim, but as a no-count car thief. Maybe this was a car thief uh, crime. Maybe that's what happened here. popped himself did he pop himself into that camp? same thing i think with harold green people saw him picked him out this is the dude shell casings match did he pop himself into that case what does that even mean they even i thought when they went back to trial the second time around i know mahoney wasn't there it was not we're contesting whether or not he did this maybe he popped himself into these cases whatever that means it was Oh, yeah, he did it, but he was crazy. How can we be oscillating back and forth? Either he did this and he was crazy, not racist, or maybe he didn't do this at all. They even said, matter of fact, Colin Cole, black male who got strangled in the hospital where a white nurse said, I saw a white man strangle him. It was the police saying, I think Colin Cole might have did this himself. What? Let's see. Oh, God. And it just contained Tom Inanu. Uh, he switches, like I said, switches over. Blah, blah, blah. Most 10 prominent criminal defense attorneys in Western New York. I wonder how many black people he works with helps to get out of prison. He said, this is a classic example of the criminal justice system handling a tragedy where there is an enormous mental health issue. The underlying thing is not criminality at all. Really, all these bodies in the street, I would think it was. It's not. I was mistaken. My bad. The system failed him. The system. What system are you talking about? How was he failed? Even, in fact, if you even want to say him going to get psychiatric help in September 1980 before he kills Glenn Dunn, 14 years old. Hey, I think for white people, whites might be reluctant to institutionalize someone who is white. They might. Hey, you're all right, man. You don't want to be locked up in here. Go out, watch a Bills game. You'll be all right. Or at least be outpatient. We don't want you locked up in here, man. That could be the case. I could be totally in error, but I do not think this is a, the system <laughs> did Joey's mother and father fail him? Let's talk about that 
if this had been a Negra and they had been out killing white people in Buffalo like this or even killing black people. I do not think the parents would have got a free ride. We would not be sitting around talking about, oh, what a wonderful, sweet, loving person Augustine's mommy is. And she's a kindly Christian black mother. <laughs> Blue gum monkey, too. What I just say about, you should have taken care of that heathen child. You're a registered nurse. You should have known that your son had health problems out here killing up white people and then trying to say he's crazy. They'd have been trying to press charges on the black mother as well. And the black father. Now, if I go out here and I'm killing up folks and then they find out that my Negro father, instead of being a no count, deadbeat, feverish black dad. Was out here shooting guns at crackers. And was an extreme racist talking about he hated white people and you go out here feverish if you want to. Bring home a white woman and I'll kill you. Kill her too. What? They would have gone berserk. Lock the whole family up. And Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, come around here. Are you serious? The whole family would have been indicted. It would not have been sympathy for the mom, sympathy for the extreme racist dad, and sympathy for the sisters, and sympathies for Joe. And I had to quit my job as an attorney because he got railroaded this was a dis the system failed are you just the system failed parlor edwards and ernest shorty jones how do you get nobody ever even gets charged you get your heart extracted and then they have the audacity well we don't think joey did it well who did yeah niggas and flies let's see Caller already got our investor. He said uh, she says that Michael Baden got it wrong from the O.J. Simpson team that he got it wrong about his trades for fellatio. We got so much uh, homoerotic content in this book. Lose one, get one, whatever. Uh, let's see. We got a guess at the black people that he killed. I don't even know what to say. Uh, let's see. Christopher always denied that he attacked Calvin Crippen. Bay Area mom was talking about this. Crippen, however, identified Christopher and insisted that he was the attacker. That trumps anything Christopher has to say, in my opinion. Like, you get identified, I think you get picked out. The guy says, oh, yeah, that's the dude that tried to kill me. And they went through all the precautions to make sure that he couldn't pick him out from the media and all that. I'm going to go with Crippen. It would seem that neither man had a reason to lie. I think Joey would have a reason to lie. Criminal culpability and all the rest of it, maybe. I think most logical people I don't want to be thought of as a murderer unless you got me got me got me and I gotta say that I did this one of them must have been mistaken or perhaps delusional that right there I think bear your mom as she talks about there's no way I'm gonna write this up as Calvin Crippen might have been delusional about this why would that even be a possibility that he could be delusional Maybe Joey's delusional. Somebody here is supposed to be crazy. How is it now that we got to think that maybe Calvin Crippen could have been crazy? Maybe Joey's right that he didn't do this. What? Maybe I missed it. Is he crazy too? Did they say something about that? He's he's mad as well, Mr. Crippen? Let's see.
we don't have answers for why he did this again it can't just be that he was racist his mom was racist his dad was racist uncle laverne was racist he lived in a neighborhood of racist whites the mayor jimmy six-pack was racist his dad fired at black people so he just said that's what you do you kill and attack black people what's the problem death wish was on i saw charles bronson kill and shoot black people that's what to do right we don't know where this came from same thing again we started reading this in may of this year we might hear all of this again we don't know why Peyton matter of fact they said some of the same things the attorney they said they have until October 6th for Peyton Gendron to file if they're going to do insanity defense they said I don't think this is going to be contested that Peyton Gendron did this that's the same thing they said with Joey Christopher no contesting he did this it's just the why this guy's loony we might hear all of this again and then it'll be doubly disgraceful and deliberately racist if we hear all of this again for the same West New York Buffalo City and they don't mention that wow you've had two white race soldiers go to New York and kill all these black people and both times we insisted oh no 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 no. it wasn't racism they were just crazy Let's see. Oh, they ended with the, the disgraceful all the way. So the epilogue ends in 2011. The Buffalo Police Cold Case Unit received an unsolicited tip on the Edwards and Jones murders. A detective looked at the case files and determined that the tip merited further attention. After reading the files, the detective similarly felt that Joseph Christopher could not have been the murderer. With a rolling of the eyes, the detective commented, he wouldn't even have needed a lawyer even I could have defended him the detective passed the tip along to the New York State Police nothing else is con- uh, included case is still open this was 2011 so it's been over a decade nothing I find this all super tacky because she can say hey my dad's a police officer so I got all my hookups and what have you there's no footnote this person is not identified we have no evidence at all this is just this could be total rumor and scuttlebutt again now the police force we got two books that start off with dedications to the good old Buffalo Police Department we've heard just from reading this book the great Chet Fuller multiple Buffalo precincts had pictures of the composite of Joey up with man of the year They had a police slowdown in the midst of all this where many black people said, dang, how do you have a police slowdown in the middle of a serial killer attacking black people? The correctional guards in the jail cheering them on. Wish you get more right on. We're cheering for you. The police do not come across as looking great. They don't even come across as looking non-racist in all of this so to say hey I found this police officer who's not even identified he doesn't think he did it based on what not identified we got a tip that somebody else did this Ooh, tip from where married an investigation what was the result none of that included are you serious no footnotes in this book by the way as well you got all this information put some footnotes in there where did you get this information from 
she has a reference section with all of her cool uh, hidden police files and folders that she got from everybody and interviews that she did none of that is cited where you can go in the taxi oh okay this is where you got this from this is where you got this from this is where you got this from like we just got to take her word from it that is not acceptable for me from a white person especially you got all this material cited anywho uh let's see 72 brag 72 people that i interviewed for this book i assume most of them are white Let's see, I'm looking at the names here. Mark Mahoney, Edward Cosgrove, Chittag- that's the first people that she gets to, the Chautauqua police, not the victims. Daniel Leonardo, Linda Webster of the Butler Library at Buffalo State College. Hopefully I can go there. Oh, see, they got the Courier Express archives. Brian Joseph, William Joe Cooley of the New York State Police, Melvin Lobbitt of the Buffalo Homicides Police. Police, police, police. Uh, thanks to Terry Belt, Christopher Belling, John Bishi, Bill Bitterman, Christopher Corwin, Johnny Douglas, let's see, James Pitts, I know he's black male. My suspicion is that she talked to mostly white people in putting this project together. Maybe the black victims were not willing to talk to her. Maybe she tried. Maybe she did talk to some of them or what have you. But wow, the first sources that she goes to are all the police department. Uh, Sounds that she even got the access to the videotapes for the interviews that uh, Joseph Christopher did. Like if you got all this information, like, wow, again, one source and then two if you got access to all this information you easily could have included the local black press and it doesn't even look like that she talked I don't see names uh, that I recognize for like the Buffalo Challenger Um, yeah like that's my view that this was deliberate in ignoring black press their views what they had to say uh, about this case because it does not conform to this guy wasn't racist He was just a little loony, mad. Let's see. uh, Any other folks dialed in? If we missed you, you have thoughts. Was uh, one more one waste of time? Concluding thoughts from the text. Why do we think Pelinero included all this information about racism uh, in this here text? uh, Parallels to the current uh, Peyton Gendron situation. Anything else that stands out? Feel free to share as we get ready to wrap up uh let's see non clemson grad and or miss c with us as well uh good evening gus this is miss c um hello other cows listeners um i think that a lot of times when we're dealing with history and stuff um the reason why white people will tend to gloss over certain incidences or cases um so they can create mass ignorance um it's just another opportunity for them to you know decades later make money off of um off of like people not knowing and people being curious and i think that was a great example of this um because this happened in the early 80s and it's now 2022 or when she released it 2017 2018 so you know that's how she became a best 
best-selling authors because people people didn't know and white people tend to be really really obsessed with like crime stories um so a couple couple points that i wanted to make um i think i was very disappointed with all the guests that you that you gathered and who were willing to um talk about their um their specialty and research on the cows and i think for white people there's there tends to be collective amnesia um in the same way that they get when cows listeners or Gus ask them about um can they share a racist joke on air and then they're like oh i don't know any you know <laughs> so um i think i think this was maybe two broadcasts ago but Gus shared a an interview with Polinero and in one of the few interviews that you know she discusses this book and this case this trial I think she was very deceptive and um, in that she was trying to claim that she didn't have a bias about about the case I I assert that Polinero was indeed biased and motivated to shift the narrative that was created by the trial and the media coverage. Um, I agree that she wanted to she wanted to make it known among white people that he wasn't racist, he wasn't aggressive enough to be a killer. And what I've noted um, in looking at another another mass murderer. Um, coverage and then you you see this all the time on those crime television shows um when white females when white female investigators researchers or historians they do this type of research where they're looking at um serial killers or trying to trying to understand like the motivation or the why um they tend to be very motherly and affectionate towards their subjects on the other hand, white men tend to be very fascinated. Like they're more so like objective about it. They they're trying to figure out like the the inner workings or the the psychology behind um, this person's actions, like why they wanted to murder. The um, they try to peel away the different I guess the different layers of it, and so they'll they'll like study it. Study it um, with a lot of obsession, but on the other hand, when women do this, it tends to be very like there tends to be some sort of attraction to their subject. So uh, Gus shared a book um, with me, and it was called Blind Eye about Dr. Michael Swango, aka Double O Swango, who he was going around injecting. Um, several people, several of his victims with poison, and he was um, creating, like, poisons at home, and in his at home, in his basement, you know, in his lab, Um, and I did further research on it and looked at some of the articles, and there was a very lengthy article that I read. The daughter of the the now deceased detective who failed to gather, gather enough evidence to charge uh, Dr. Michael Swango, she was writing love letters to 
to Dr. Swango in prison. And she was claiming, like, she was trying to understand um, his why, and she was trying to communicate with him, with the serial killer, to be able to share her findings um, with people in her class, because she was a professor as well, professor of psychology or social something, um, socios uh, psychology. However, I think going back to what Gus said earlier, there's a thrill, like when white women do this kind of investigative research, I think there's more so a thrill and, and they, they enjoy being able to study these subjects because they have a, an obsession and like an attraction to, to their subject. And I wanted to uh, assert that this book to me is like a love letter to honor um, the life of Joey. And she ends the book by stating, the question is why, oh, well, I guess we'll never know. And quote, she says, the answers were forever lost long before his death, askew and unrecoverable from the murky depths of a diseased mind. So I agree with the way that Gus was saying it. I, I feel like it was it was definitely a weak ending. It was anticlimactic. You know, she focused on Joey, um, you know, throughout. She wanted us to be, like, sympathetic to him or empathetic or wanted white people to be sympathetic because this was definitely not written for non-white people. And if Joey had murdered a bunch of white women, you know, everybody would know about this case, about the trial. Um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have been buried um, for the last, you know, 40 years. And she definitely wouldn't be advocating for his mental illness. Um, last thing I want to share is a couple, a couple broadcasts ago, you know, um, Joey was writing a letter to his younger sister and he says, I love you. I want the Tupperware. Oh, yeah, can you send me 30 pounds of eggplant? You know, he must have been very familiar with uh, the studies that tell you that, oh, you need to eat foods that look like specific organs or body parts. And so he wanted eggplant. So I, I think that he had a, a, a serious obsession with maybe he had a, a, a small phallus or maybe he was just obsessed with black men's phallus. And with that, I will end my contribution he did ask for all that eggplant mm, mm, mm. that's what they that's the emoji they use folks are trying to talk area eight and uh be tongue-in-cheek about it as they say uh mm, mm. the homoeroticism i said that it's just it's so flagrantly throughout the text from beginning to end that you know Dr. Baden's correct, man, man, either or. Um, that is interesting. I have to think about that. I have to pay attention. She said that when white women are writing, they tend to be more motherly and, and sympathizing with the subject, whereas if it's a white man, they'll be objective, the facts, trying to really, you know, dig, why did the person do this? And, you know, really get in here and be critical about what's happening here i have to my, certainly i would say with this like the objective is so just empathizing and poor joe we even talked about why did she have all of those like nursery rhymes 
Alice in Wonderland. Why why was that? <laughs> like at the beginning of so many chapters and even that child rape, right? It just uh Yes, uh my and even the cashing in as she said where they can benefit from ignorance come back some years later and write a very uh what they call slanted biased accounting of this information important as well and again why i say reading is more important than watching television uh, and paying attention to the news what's happening so we can be uh, as informed as possible about things that are uh, happening around us because mostly what's happening is white supremacy racism i think even the caller said dang as a black male like yeah I guess I should know about this. Like, woo, folks are race soldiers going around and specifically targeting black males. Like, yes, that is something to be aware of. Incidentally, we did have a caller who said that they didn't think the term uh, that Joseph G. Christopher would qualify as a serial killer. I'm, yeah, I think he would. I think you do have racist serial killers, uh, individuals classified as white who go out and kill a lot of folks, who non-white people specifically, and as many as they can. I think that sort of thing does happen joseph g christopher racist serial killer what i need if if anybody i guess they can let us know what's incorrect about that term whether you don't think it's correct for joseph g christopher to be labeled as such or anyone else but yeah i think you do have racist serial killers unfortunately uh let's see any other uh commentary folks want to make sure that they uh get in our final installment absolute madness Can I be heard? Bay Area mom? Yes, ma'am. Okay, thank you. So, I as I listen to the, the rest of the callers and the um, emails and just all the different responses, I know this is a, a guide for them for when these situations come up and how to uh, um, view any... Um, acts of racism. It's not racism, it's mental illness. Because I think too, the compassion uh, that the author had, kind of like a son, that's like her son, her brother, her nephew. She, she went to, if she interviewed, said his mom 72 times, that's a lot of times just to be talking to somebody. So it is all about them. And we're never victims. It's all, oh, you're going to die anyway. You're doing the oh, engineering training. So there's no value on on our life. And they're just giving them a blueprint on what you do. Hey, so when this case comes up, you think, I'm sure the attorney that uh, resigned and uh, went on the um, defense side, uh, or switch side, I'm sure he is uh cooking up right right now for the uh the, the um guy that did that uh shooting um a few months ago. He's I'm sure he's involved somehow to get it to where he's not looked at as a racist. He's looked at he's only eighteen. They were even saying because we haven't talked about it in so long because it's old news. But they were even saying how his brain was underdeveloped and it Technically, that was 25 and they're adults. So, 
I want to. Hey, I gotta keep up with this because we're not really talking about it. But I just gotta keep up with it. I do notice the school doors are still locked, but I need to keep up with it. Stay tuned. So thank you so much, uh, and I'll mute myself. Much obliged, uh, Bay Area Mom. Yet they have a number of reports that have been saying that already. Um, This is uh, just from last month uh, in the Washington Post. Uh, Gendron, who is charged with carrying out a racially motivated massacre at a Topps-friendly market store here in May, might might seek to introduce a psychiatric defense in his state terrorism and hate crimes case, his attorney said at a court appearance Thursday. Again, next court date is October 6th. Gus T., if I can get to Buffalo, might be. Let's see if I can be there to be in court. I have to call to see if uh, the public uh, can be present for that one. And, you know, do you have to camp outside, that sort of thing? But, yeah, if they if it's open to the public, like... Might see if I can be there. Let's in person, see what's going down, take notes and all the rest. But, oh, yeah. And they said I think they have by this date to if they're going to do that sort of thing, that he has some sort of uh, mental deficit has to be the paperwork and what have you has to be filed by then. So, yeah, definitely paying. I believe he could be facing the death penalty. Uh, I don't know if they said hanging him from the highest post, but he could be facing the death penalty uh, either with the federal charges or state charges. So be mindful uh, with this case as we kind of move forward. And definitely uh, I would connect if you, you know, sat and listened and heard all that when talking to people, I would connect these two like this has happened before and even how long it took for that case uh, to go. And they even said that they started out and it was aggressive, got a convict and that died down because it went on so long. Is he sane? Is he not sane? Let's have 50,000 psychiatric evaluations and all the rest of it. And they said in 87, this has already been forgotten. We're not even talking about this anymore. Hey, we have so many shootings now. Hey, you know, they'll probably have another shooting before we get to the weekend. So that is for real old news. Negras getting shot up in Buffalo. We don't even care. We'll see if they win the Super Bowl. Maybe. Other folks, commentary, they need to make sure they get in. Can you hear Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Um, I was uh, looking up definition for serial killer and it said about um, at least three murders in a series of you know, a series of murders that form a pattern. Uh, I would say that, um, yeah, I think Joey will qualify as a serial killer. Um, and this is a, a bit of an aside. Um, I just saw a report that um, in, uh, I think, Keller, Texas, the school library just banned the blue aside. But that'll be it. I think that's number two uh, in the Cows Book Club way back when, uh, a decade ago. But on my top ten, Toni Morrison, the late grandsister, uh, one of the greatest of all time, and fantasy it was. But that book gets banned all the time for lots of reasons. Um, Make sure I get Barbara Banks, 
get the name correct, she was on the Tony Brown segment, Barbara Banks and James Pitts, uh, who both right there in Buffalo, and Barbara Banks with the Buffalo Challenger, totally excluded uh, from the text, Buffalo Criterion excluded as well, tried to read as many of the reports, and again, the black press did a phenomenal job covering these murders, the trial, all of that, Ebony, we were just talking about the Jet Magazine, uh, Challenger Criterion already said, Tony Brown's Journal, uh, Baltimore Afro-American, I mean, it's just uh, absolutely amazing, like, that is one, like, if people are not informed, it is not because the black press did a poor job uh, got the Pittsburgh Courier. It's not like the black press uh, was sleep at the wheel, as they say. They did amazing work all the way through, and which all got ignored by Pelinero. Uh Let's see. Linda Hamilton as well. She sent me uh, the information on these killings. Lots of the newspaper articles from the Challenger from way back when, where, again, they had lots great reports from the very beginning artwork all of that questions about the police and the police slowdown and what they deemed as their really inept conduct uh, from beginning to end uh, in all of this. Incidentally, we didn't hear anything about police informants in the white community to go and catch this killer. They talked about having black informants go get the, the no count niggers who shot a black, a white person, excuse me, stabbed a white person, Terrence uh, Mills. But yeah, they didn't hear anything about having uh, white informants go out and and help us get this Joey. Again, the police, allegedly, they had 2,000 suspects. Joey was not one. Anything else? Folks need to get in on uh, Joey 22, Absolute Madness, Catherine Pellinero. assume folks are satisfied uh incidentally i watched the fbi files uh documentary it's like 45 minutes like oh my gosh that is the lamest thing ever (laughs) like uh particularly at this point like man uh if you watch that and think you learned anything about joey 22 like oh i mean talk about keeping people poorly informed gee i'd say about the only thing that is good for is that you can actually see uh, like Madonna Gorney and some of these other folks where, you know, they don't even have pictures in the book per se. You can see Madonna Gorney. You can see, I think, Ed Cosgrove uh, is in it. Um, might be one or two other of the actual people. I don't even think you get to see any of the family. Like, I don't think they have like any of the uh, Harold uh, Green's relatives or Glenn Dunn's family members. Just like this book. Like, you know, it's it's not really focused on the, the black victims per se. Parlor Edwards, Ernest Shorty Jones. I don't think they're, you know, you get to see any of their relatives or hear what they're up to, how this impacted their lives uh, in any way. It's just kind of a recreation of the crimes. And it, I'll even make sure I get that in. This book was way before Peyton Jenner, so it's not connected to that at all. Maybe they'll do a re-edit with something about that, but I doubt it. Few interviews uh, with Palinero about this book. That's been my, you know, conclusion uh, from my research. Maybe I missed them. White people and their adoration of serial killer books. Uh, Missy talked about that. You know, oh my goodness, they will buy up the Menendez brother- brothers and. Jeffrey Dahmer and all the rest of it just buy them up. 
Wayne Williams and all of that. Just oh, 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 oh read and read, 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 read. We read Wisdom of Psychopaths, Kevin Dutton, also in the book club not that long ago, way more recent than The Bluest Eye. I am not into, I mean, even that. <laughs> Mr. Fuller said there's so many components of the insane. You want to talk about madness, the madness of white supremacy racism that we just take for granted. All of the whodunit murder mystery novels, all of that and making films out of them. That is so bizarre. It's madness. Sit around and read about somebody killing something. <laughs> like what? And tricking people about this crime. You got to try and who did it? Uh, who killed Parlor Edwards? How did they do it? How did they get it? What? How is that a genre? The serial killer genre. You can go and read about Charles Manson and the Boston Strangler, Joseph G. Christopher. How is that a genre to just sit around and read about not just one killing, but went and killed 30 people, 12 people, the Green River Killer and all. How is that? The sister. And to know you can be a best-selling crime author. That's Catherine Pellinero, best-selling true crime author. What is that? <laughs> like, come on. It's not things that are about constructive and doing constructive things. Harold Green trying to be an engineer. and uh, I want to read about somebody getting hacked up, sodomized, raped, chopped their head off. Yes, yes. Mm. How many bodies? Oh, he stuffed them in the trunk. Oh, yes, yes. And then make documentaries and 15 of them. I am not. I mean, that might be one, you know, not knowing all this. But I mean, even that, like what in the world? Would you have that in a system? Hopefully we wouldn't have all these butchering. So have to go back and read about the old days. And then again, who wants to sit around and read about butcherings? Apparently, hey, she didn't make this book for us. Nobody here had read it. I didn't even heard of it. I didn't even know who Catherine Pellinero was. She didn't write this for us. White people to sit around. Hey, some folks said already have the white game plan code, if you will, in place. The next time this happens, hey, he's not a racist. Don't be calling Peyton Gentron a monster mental illness now we'll get to see now does that happen October 6th Gus T might be in Buffalo let's see does that happen anyway for Gus T to sit here and talk all that I don't like serial killer books and I guess technically if you want to call it hey some people put like Oriental James and Jeffrey Tubin's book in true crime trial there was a murder <laughs> that's what it's about so yeah, and we did read the wisdom of psychopaths so, i mean i guess to some degree we do a lot of true crime here anyway we were totally set up for bill russell second win ready to rock and roll already had the book and that was a difficult book to obtain too said they're price gouging and everything they don't have an ebook there's no audio book and all so it's going to be some effort but i mean already ready to roll have the book let's do it Somewhere along the way, readers, listeners, both maybe, 
that were following along with absolute madness said, dang, there was another serial killer who was attacking black males. I'll even get my paws on it. There certainly are serial killers who've attacked black males. Cleveland Strangler, that was actually a black male who was killing black females exclusively. Uh, the Grim Sleeper in Los Angeles, I wrote about him. They did an HBO uh, documentary about him. He was convicted, uh, by the way, but he was killing exclusively uh, black females. So that does happen in the system of white supremacy, absolutely, and even worldwide, not just uh, here in the States. And even get one more for Gus's ignorance, the Green River Killer, Seattle, I believe that is also white supremacy racism. I wasn't here when all that happened, but I've been here long enough now that, you know, that is irrelevant. Like I should know Seattle history and that case, because I think that's white supremacy racism. And I'm embarrassed to say a cow's listener. What did they say? The metaphor pulled goat tees coat, uh, pulled Gus T's coattails to that one, uh, Seattle resident, but whatever. Uh, and saying, dang, I think you should look at this because I think the victims are way disproportionately non-white females. Like I said, I wasn't here, so I'm not an expert uh, on that case. And I, I'm not into serial killings and all that. But man, based on I even I can at least say, well, I'm ignorant about this case. But Cal's listener who is here got interested in this case. And I did help her with the research. Go to the library and see what we could find, that sort of thing. Uh, and she was, oh man, it was, I think it did not take very much time at all, especially, I mean, you could do this quick, just look, go to a website where they have the pictures of the victims and, you know, this is a super white area, so it shouldn't be something where 30%, 40% of the victims are non-white, like anything like that is, whoa, it's not that many non-white people here, like, are you going out and looking for white females to kill? So that we might even have to cover for that here. Cause like, man, that's right here in Seattle. I can't be in Seattle and to have a very well-known serial killer. And this is racism, white supremacy where he was maybe targeting uh, non-white females. And Gus doesn't even talk about this or point that out. Like geez, research project, maybe for other folks and myself as well. Anyway, we were all set to read Bill Russell, second win. He just passed away and all that. Even though we do have a rule about reading books uh, where people have just passed away. Listeners said, man, there was another serial killer who was targeting black males. And it sounds just like Joseph G. Christopher. I said, no way. They said, way. I go get the book. I look and I'm like, eh, we're not going to read that. What I just said, I am not really into just sitting around and reading all these ghoulish books. And eh, they went and carved them up and chopping them out. Come on. Uh, so let's read Bill Russell. So I tossed to the side. I'm, you know, I did get the book. Check this out. In fact, I said, hey, maybe we can go talk to the author. But I looked and the author's deceased. So I was like, ah, I just have to read it, you know, once we get done with this one. Other books to read, you know, this summer. As we're getting closer to the finish line for this other book, they have documentary and bunches of them, like not one or two, which was also struck me as kind of odd because they have way more documentaries on these killings over here and basically none. They got that one lame one on Joey. I go check out the documentary. I'm stunned because it is just like Joey's painfully. So they talked to some of the victims There's even a point. One of the victims who lived he said he's facing down this white serial killer for 20, 45 minutes to get 
out of his residence. Even that, I was stunned. Like, can you imagine? Your fate. He doesn't know he's a serial killer, but he's like, hey, this guy's something wrong with him. Like, I got to get out of here. What is going on? It lasts for 20 to 45 minutes. Luckily, he got out. Two dozen others did not. One, they talked to his defense lawyer, the white man who was eventually convicted, confessed, yeah, I did all that, killed all of them. Two dozen, yeah, basically all black males, basically, except for two exceptions. He says, man, it was staggering. There were so many bodies and DNA evidence. Like, we don't have guesswork. We got DNA evidence on this one, so, yeah. He said, man, I thought this would get a whole lot of attention. It did not. That was one. The other point that swinged it, I was like, ew, you have to read this now. Oh, there were three. So the second was, they went back to the victim, black male who survived the attack. And they said, man, did you believe this guy? He said he was going to tie you up to meet this girl. Like, was this believable? <laughs> like, these are people that are supposed to be smart. Like, is this believable? Somebody that you've never met comes up to you and says, hey, got this girl. Y'all can hook up. And blah, blah, blah. Uh, let me tie you up to meet her. Would average person, would they believe that? <laughs> so they have to go. <laughs> Apparently, for a number of black people, yes, this is a believable scenario. <sighs> they talk to the black male who escaped and he doesn't go for the tying up and he says, man, and I mean, you can tell like, whoo, he looks traumatized. He said, man, I just didn't think that this guy was dangerous. What'd they say about Joey? Oh, crazy Joey. He was cool. He said the exact same. What'd they say about Peyton Gendron? Grady Lewis said he talked to him for two hours, gave him his card, keys, and all that. He said, I didn't even think about it until it was almost too late. Third thing, no count social media, someone posted, and they said, man, I went back to read because Gus did so much work about Hurricane Katrina. That was one of our signature projects before this with Buffalo. We are coming up on, what is it? Even my math is off. 17 years. That's what it is. 17 years. Hurricane Katrina. Next week, I think, is 17 years out. This serial killing happened in Louisiana, New Orleans specifically, and it went on during Hurricane Katrina mentioned in the book. That's where I was even more outraged. Like, wow, we did all this work, talked to all these people, had that book on the book club, and talked about all the black males that got killed deliberately during Katrina. Looters and rapists. Gotta kill them all. Uh, and there was a white serial killer operating in the area at the time, and nobody knows about this? Woof. That was the mathematics of, man, I can't believe it because I was really excited to read Bill Russell next, but we are not. Instead, 
the next book, uh, make sure I give out the title so folks can get it. I don't think I will change my mind between now and next week. Uh, it should be pretty solid. This is what we are reading. Wow, things keeps there we go. The Bayou Strangler, Louisiana's most gruesome serial killer, written by Fred Rosen, who is deceased white male. Now again, I even pointed that out to folks who, who said, Oh my gosh, have you seen this book, Gus? Now I said, Now okay, so the Bayou Strangler Strangler, Absolute Madness, Joey twenty two. All of these books about white men white racist serial killers targeting black males are written by white people in fact I said written by and for white people there are actually a number of documentaries on the Bayou Strangler and one of them is very good did the exact opposite of what I said. They don't just sit there and go and talk to his mom and oh, wasn't he sweet and wasn't they go talk to the victims. That's the correct if this is gonna be sympathy. Who died? Oh yes, let's go talk to them. Excellent documentaries and nobody's heard. And this is the one where everybody can say what they have been saying about this case, because it's not true to say that about Joseph uh, G. Christopher. That case is well covered was well covered at the time by everybody black press white press globally even really everybody this case in Louisiana which is way more current 2005 was not covered at all in fact that's even in one of the documentaries that they went to tell the New York Times oh my god we got a serial killer in Louisiana who killed two dozen people he's on the top five list what I just say about that that's white culture how do you have a top list for serial killers but this guy's on it Bayou Strangler the New York Times said eh that's local no thanks black male privilege I thought even that was black male privilege when black males get killed everybody knows about it that's what they said so this is two cases where you literally got dozens of black male bodies and basically no one knows any of their names nor do we even know that this happened Buffalo New York Louisiana in the middle of Hurricane Katrina no less where you got people saying Kanye West George Bush doesn't care about black people and racism every day. Da, 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 da. And oh, by the way, there is a racist serial killer targeting black people in the midst of all of this, targeting black males. In fact, the one that sealed it, they said when people found out about this and they saw who the victims were, black males, Gus T, they said, oh, taking out the trash. That's how we'll recognize 17 years, Hurricane Katrina, one of the stories I missed. And I said, hey, for Katrina, it was so much of this, like you would never catch everything that happened because this was every day. All areas of people activity would take lifetimes to study all the layers of racism. This was one that Gusty missed with Katrina. Oops, 
there was a racist serial killer in New Orleans in 2005. I don't know how I missed that. Bayou Strangler. So that'll be for next week. I was looking forward to The Blind Eye. I told Missy about that book. Like I was, We were supposed to read that before we even read uh, Dear Senator. I already had the book. I was ready to roll. And then, bang. Dear Senator got derailed two times where I had books I was really excited about reading. And we had to switch last minute. Bayou Strangler, hopefully it will be a quality. Dear Senator was a great switch. Hopefully this will be a great switch as well. At minimum, we'll see. How many people knew about the Bayou Strangler when we get to next week? You'll have a week. You can come in, call, be honest. Did you know about this case? Much as we talked about Hurricane Katrina and everybody else lived through this, sat and watched it on TV. White serial killer raping, killing black males. Two dozen in our lifetime. Anyway, tomorrow, neutralizing workplace racism. Final bow, much obliged, absolute madness. Glad we know about Joseph G. Christopher and can now include him when we discuss white supremacy, racism, and Buffalo. Oh, can't wait till the field trip. Get to Buffalo. Man, to have the flight taken care of. So now we can just work on housing, hopefully. Flight part taken care of. We can just work on housing like, woof. Going to Buffalo. Hopefully we can get there for October 6th. Hopefully this has been worth your time and energy over the past uh, three months, a little bit longer, but worthwhile. Sobriety would be best. Man, you have no idea when you could be out and about and Joey is stalking you or the Bayou Strangler. You need to be alert. One of the victims even said, like Joey yelled out, nigger, and they turned around and just dodged a knife attack. If you are intoxicated, maybe you aren't even alert. You don't even realize you are in danger. That was some of the victims. I'm not even doing the rest of it. We could just wrap right there. That was some of the Bayou Strangler victims. He got them at the bar. They weren't even thinking correctly. Oh, that was a part of the hook. That was a part of the hook for some of them. It was, hey, Rick James said, pass the J. That's how we started the program. Everybody's favorite. Dr. Welsing doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. It was, hey, I'm a cool white man like Joey. Let's go get high. And they ended up raped and murdered. That's Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>